Steve and Kevin take a fresh look at the evolving vintage metagame on episode 54 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 54 of So Many Insane Plays, our mid-June 2016 vintage metagame update, where we take a closer look at the evolution of the vintage metagame in the wake of the restriction of Lodestone Golem, and the new decks and recent tournament results, including the NYSE Open 4. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at ManyInsanePlays, email us at SoManyInsanePlaysPodcast at gmail.com, or leave us feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. Not many announcements this episode. Steve, why don't you give everyone an update on how the VSL is going? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the VSL has been a roller coaster. This season has been one of the most interesting that we've ever had uh, for a lot of reasons. One, the last couple seasons, the presence, I think, of Lodestone Golem kind of dampened the experience. You know, there was a feeling, at least a perception within the league, that the workshop decks were just really powerful and it was hard to really, really was difficult to beat them. This time, things seem just a lot more open. It's like something is cracked open and we're just still beginning to unspool the possibilities in the format. You know, from Paul Rietzel's White Weenie deck to, um, you know, the Esper Mentor that Brian Kelly's played to um, some of the Eldrazi, White Eldrazi decks that have performed really well in recent events. Uh, It's just fascinating to see what people are playing and why. And you really have no idea what what's coming next. Um, right now, everything is you know still the early stages. We're only we're between weeks two and three. But um, but I'm having a great time uh, playing in the first trimester at least. I'm playing um, with combo, which has been a lot of fun. So if people <laughs> want to see me play a pretty interesting match against Brian Kelly, they can go on the YouTube channel and and watch uh, my combo versus the old combo versus blue matchup. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy that one? I did. I did. I think that one favors you a little bit with Brian's particular list, but yeah. still a, a competitive match. Well, Brian is a is a fierce competitor, but I, that was my sense. I mean, when you see who you're playing, one of the weaknesses that I decided Brian's deck has is he's got a lot more mana and fewer counterspells. Well, let me put it this way. A little bit more mana and a little bit fewer counterspells <laughs> than most Gush decks, um, and that just makes you a little bit weaker Makes you stronger against workshops, but a little bit weaker. Sorry, stronger against workshops and Thorn and uh, Thalia strategies, but weaker against combo. It's also notable, though, that a lot of the tactics he runs, um, I think, are are not as effective against combo. Um, but, Example. Well, you know, Sylvan Library is a very powerful draw spell, but it has the smokestack problem. The turn it comes into play, it does nothing. The sure. turn after it comes into play, it does nothing. It's only, you know, two turns later that it actually does something. So, you know, if you're sitting there deciding whether to play turn one Sylvan Library or a disruptive spell, you know, you're incented to play the library, but then it creates a big opening for the opponent. Yeah. And and I also tried to exploit playing Brian Kelly by running heavy, both Defense Grid and City of Solitude, I think. City of Solitude is really where... What I did with Combo, actually, is I looked online. A lot of people are playing DPS, but almost everyone plays with like a tiny red splash. 
and they play with Wheel of Fortune, and then they mm-hmm. play with Empty the Warrens in the sideboard. And I found that, first of all, every time I played Wheel of Fortune or had it played against me in the mirror, the person who played Wheel of Fortune more often than not lost <laughs> because the other person just was able to vomit out Yogwill, Lethal Yogwill, without having to do the work of building their graveyard. Um, and, and I think City of Solitude is just a better three-drop against Control. It evades Flusterstorm, Pyroblast, Mental Misstep. Uh, it's generally evades Mind Break Trap. I, I just think that uh, the green splash is slightly stronger. You get abrupt decays out of the board. Um, and City of Solitude is just a really strong card right now for the same reason that Sylvan Library is actually good against other blue decks, right? Mm-hmm. Green enchantments are hard to deal with. <laughs> yep, that's right. The weak spot in people's removal generally. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see the evolution of, you know, I think that the data that we're going to present will suggest some possible directions for VSL evolution, but I think one of the themes of this podcast is just how uh, chaotic and unstable (laughs) the format is right now, right? Indeed. There's a lot going on. Let's get underway. So let's start with Magic Online and the daily results, as we as we enjoy to do in the past. And we've got some good results now for the post lo- the post Lodestone portion of April and May, and the first half or thereabouts of June at this stage. Steve, what are your observations? Well, why don't you why don't you go ahead and just give us some of the key data points? So let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about the top two uh, decks on people's mind for the last several months, and that is Shops versus Monastery Mentor. In the post-Lodestone portion of May online, that is after, I'm sorry, April, the post-Lodestone portion of April online, that is after the 13th and beyond, in terms of 4-0 decks, which is our preferred uh, starting point, our preferred starting metric for examining performance online. And, and just, just to explain that point, we've explained it before, but mm-hmm. you know, the daily results report both 3-1 decks and 4-round dailies and 4-0 decks. And the 4-0 decks, there's obviously a much smaller sample. But if you can go 4-0 in an event, it means you're in a 6-round event, you're basically locked for top 8. So we both... It, it's a smaller sample size, but it's a more, in a sense, reliable sample size, and it gives you a sense of, you know, something that would actually appear in a, you know, 45-player, 50-player tournament top eight. Mm-hmm. With that said. <laughs> With that said, in the post-restriction portion of April, there are 12 4 decks, three of which were workshops, or 25%. In May, there are 19 4 decks. We have the full month's results, two of which or workshops, or 11%, a significant drop-off there. In June, we have eight 4-0 decks, a little bit less than half of the month, and there are zero 4-0s by shops in June. And the reason is because shops has transitioned to Eldrazi, right? Well, uh, we covered this in our last podcast. I mean, that is the overall trend, but not in June. Since there are only eight results in June, the sample size is very small. There are no Eldrazi in June either. In fact, Eldrazi has not, in the daily results, has not been as as prominent as it has been, I mean, in 4-0s, that is, as it has been in other metrics, that yeah. is, all finishes and then the NYSE. So speaking just of 4-0 decks in this three-month time period, let's talk about Mentor then. Going back to that second half of April, 12 decks, six of them, or 50%. That's insane. Yeah, we, we covered this in our last podcast, but yeah. in April, in the second half of April, 
literally 50% of the top of the 4-0 decks were mentor decks. Which is crazy. Yeah. In May, again, 19 results in May. Five of them were mentor. That's 26%. Which is a having. Yeah. A having, yeah. In the first part of June, out of the eight 4-0 decks, two of them were mentor. Another 25%. So it's dipped by 1% since. Yeah. So it's flat. Uh, so far, May and June are flat since the enormous outcropping in late April. Uh, we'll see <laughs> if June finishes out at a 25% pace or not. Those are the top two decks in terms of quantity over this time period. No other deck has more than two per month, but I'll just point out the ones that do. Yeah. And four O's, yeah. Keep going, yeah. The second greatest performer in terms of overall quantity in that time period is uh, Oath, but it had none in the second half of April. <laughs> it, had, it, was a, it was a flat zero, yeah. Yeah, it had two in May and one so far in June, 11 and 13% respectively. Similarly, Dark Petition Storm had the same numbers, none in April, two in May, one in June. 11 and 13%, yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Landstill had two in the, that second half of April for a 17% portion, and then one in May and none so far in April. And let's see, other noteworthies. The one that stands out to me is, there's two. You mentioned Eldrazi. Eldrazi had no foros in that latter part of April. In fact, it didn't show up as a foro until May where it had two, which is 11%. It hasn't had one yet so far in June. And then the other one standout for June is Pyromancer decks. There have been two 4-0 performances by <laughs> Gush Pyromancer deck. That is a Pyromancer deck that is that is not a Delver deck, not a Mentor deck, and not a Tendrils deck. Just a pyro, pure Pyromancer aggro control kind of deck. Two performances. Mostly Grixis, yeah. yeah. So we don't have a lot of results for June yet. No, it's tiny. But no, no four O's by shops is interesting. But let's move on though, because I think you get you get a fair bit more results when you look at the the three one finishes. Obviously, there are many many more of these cool. results. So so we're now going to shift and talking about four O's and three ones combined, right? That is all the results reported for the dailies over this time period. So going back to that second part of April post restriction, we have seventy total decks for that time period. 70, 70 total just in the second half of April, right? Correct, yes. Yeah. Top performing deck out of that population is Mentor with 35 or 50%. So in terms of 4-0s and overall finishes, Mentor was exactly half of the metagame right. in that time period. The second best performing deck in that second part of April was Workshops with 11 or 16% of the metagame. Nothing else was greater than 4%. It was just completely dominated by Mentor. I mean, 50% of the metagame was Mentor, yeah. then 16% by Shops, and then everything else was tiny. Everything else was battling for that last few percent. Yeah, yeah. but we've so seen a massive shift since then. That's right. Let's look at May then. So the the all-over results mirror the 4-0 results in terms of Mentor. 26%. In, yeah. 26%. We have 95 reported decks in May. 25 of those were Mentor. That's 26%. The next best performing deck in May is Dark Petition Storm. Wow. With 14 appearances or 15%. Fascinating. Close on its heels yeah. are shops with 12 or 13%. That is nice. 12 decks equaling 13%. The percentages are so close to reality because we have 95 decks. And right. then right on their tails in fourth place is Eldrazi. So, so once you add in the 3-1 performances, Eldrazi had 11 appearances in May. That's... That's so 12% the, so, of the Mentor. So the format in the second half of April, at least on Magic Online dailies, goes from being 50% Mentor to like in 50, roughly 15% shops to in May, 
and our last podcast was mid-May, so now we're looking at the full month, yep. to being twenty a quarter mentor, fifteen uh, percent combo, yep. and then close to you know like thirteen percent shops and about thirteen percent Eldrazi. Right. So it becomes this. It goes from being like you know overwhelmingly mentor to a pretty diverse you know twenty five percent, fifteen percent, fourteen percent, twelve percent, thirteen percent smattering of the top four decks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And but if you and if you combine Eldrazi and shops, you get actually twenty. 25 percent yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly Be, below those decks below those four decks again nothing was higher than five percent the next highest deck was landstill with five percent like Correct. five finishes so yeah. interesting yeah i mean this is again we've done a lot of the april data before but this is the first time we've looked at may and its totality yeah so now let's talk about june then again we don't have we only have a little less than half of the month's results we have 47 decks 47 is a reasonable number, but it's spread pretty thin once you get Mentor out of the way. So Mentor has 10 of those, or 21%. So, so Mentor's, Mentor falls from 50 to 26 to 21. Right. Yep. Second place deck so far in June with nine, that is one <laughs> fewer than Mentor, is Dredge. Awesome. This seems to happen every once in a while online, where Dredge <laughs> will just spike up and be the second best performing deck for a month. It's got nine performances, or 19%, which is humorous the third performing third best performing deck is eldrazi nice but it drops down to five appearances or 11 percent so it, is this, it, and this it's include, actually is this include white and tribal eldrazi or just yes yes it does it's a combination of the white and the tribal eldrazi decks it does not include those few workshop decks that have just thought not seer those are still we're still grouping those as workshop decks interesting okay so if you were to if you were to cobble together another metric for just thought not seer decks, it would be the second most performing deck across the board. I think. Wow. Then, yeah, it would be very close so, to mentor's so, performance. So in, mentor in mentor has two more percentage points over dredge. <laughs> right. And, then, and the next best performing deck is Eldrazi at eleven. Yeah. And then keep going. Uh, after that is Oath at nine percent. These are very small numbers. Oath yeah. had four appearances in this time period. That's nine percent. Shops had three appearances in this time period. That's six percent. Pyromancer at six percent. Everything else is less than. Pyromancer five. is at six percent in in overall. So that shows you that the four and O is kind of misleading right now, <laughs> because it's twenty five percent in four and O's, but six percent in overall. <laughs> yeah, that's a small sample size for you. We'll we'll obviously be updating these numbers after June is over. Yeah. Yeah. How would you characterize the trend and and the dailies? I would point to three things. One is the the trend for Mentor is. It's too hard to tell until we get the whole month, but it's either flat or slightly down. In terms yeah. of the overall results, it's, it's slightly down from May, from 26 to 21, but we don't have the full month in yet. But um, then the next interesting story, I, th- I think it's on everybody's mind, is Eldrazi. Yeah, so up Eldrazi to, goes from 0%, basically. Right. To... It goes from not a deck to <laughs> fourth, a close fourth place in May to third place in June so far, with not all the results in so yet. Right. And and we know, you and I know, and I think most people do, that Eldrazi is kind of, still kind of picking up steam, right? Yes. It's the just NYSE getting, was, yeah. Right. The NYSE was a big coming out party for the deck, so I would not be surprised if it went either direction at this point, from this mid June point, because people are are right. really adopting adapting to it, but other people are still exploring it and and enhancing the deck. We're gonna talk a lot about Eldrazi today. So. Yeah. And then the third thing I would point to is just this spike by Dredge. Dredge is, it's always there in the metagame. If you look past, like, year to date, I'll just list off its monthly numbers. It was 9%, 18%, 15%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%, 10%, 11%, 12%, 13%, 14%, 15%, 16%, 17%, 18%, 19%, 20%, 21%, 22%, 23%, 24
4%, then 19%. So it's up and down, but it's it never goes away. I think Dredge had got a little shot in the arm because uh, some people have been playing prized amalgam, and I think that's led to some some slight new variants in the list. And whenever Dredge is, gets yeah. a new weapon, and it has it tends to find a, a bit of a different play angle, and it changes people's understanding and as, as well as sideboarding in the matchup. So I think Dredge has benefited a bit from uh, a slightly different configuration in the last few weeks, and a little bit more attention because of the amalgam. <clears throat> we'll talk about that more in our set review, I think. So Mentor continues to be on top, but the margins in June at least are quite close. We'll see when the whole month is reported. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the things that people have been tracking as well is Gush, um, and so I've been I've done a little bit of the math on that. I mean, it's one thing to look at Mentor; it's another thing to look at Gush overall. Uh, you know, even though Mentor was only 50% of April, it's important to remember that Gush was actually 60% of April's results. <laughs> and in May, it actually dropped to 34%. And the calculations for June, it's interesting, though, as of, um, you know, podcasting, we're podcasting on a Monday, but the data that I had pulled as of this weekend had Gush at just on just around 30%. And there were some, I mean, there's been a ton of dailies where there was no gushes at all. So gush has gone from 60 to just under 30%. And if you were, it's hard to project, but if you project, it's not unreasonable to think that gush will actually finish around 25, 26% of June at the end of June. So uh, just for people who are keeping track of that, uh, it's been a dramatic drop in the number of gush checks in the, in the format and MTGO results. I mean, really, really stark. It has, and it's interesting. We've seen a consolidation of Gush decks around Mentor, but the overall number is falling because in prior months, in the first quarter of this year, Delver was consistently six to eight percent of the metagame at that time. Yeah, it, and it's disappeared. And during that same period, Mentor was in the well. It was six percent in February, but in January and March, it was twelve and thirteen percent. The combination of those two then comes out to about twenty. 18 right. to 20. That was the combined Delver and Mentor. Since the restriction, though, Delver, ha- I'm, I'm sorry, Mentor had its spike up to 50%, back down to the 20 to 25% range. Delver is down to 2%. Yeah. It's been 2% in, in May and June so far. So it's really been pushed but out. We didn't, I mean, it's interesting if you want to break down some of the gush decks. I mean, it's unfortunate, you know, one of the things that we need to do is we do need to track engines, but if, I mean, Gush shows up in, like you said, in Delver, Mentor, Pyromancer decks, but also was showing up in, in Doomsday, and Doomsday has just kind of fallen off the map with the rise of the Thalia decks because it's such a bad, such sure. a bad matchup. But the one thing, the one archetype that was really interesting that kind of had a little bit of a, a showing, it kind of like peeped its head out and then has disappeared again mm-hmm. is Thing in Ice. Thing and Ice has not proven <laughs> to be able to, to, to hang in there, at least thus far, right? Yeah, there were four appearances in the three one or better results of Thing in the Ice in May. There were none in April, and there haven't been yet any in June. But there were a couple of different builds of Thing in the Ice-based decks. They took two forms to my eyes. Most of them were just creature decks in the Delver model, where the only creatures were Thing in the Ice, Snapcaster Mage, and occasionally Vendillion Click. Right. But there was also one build in paper that had Thing in the Ice and a Tendrils-based right. deck, <laughs> uh, a la Pyromancer. It was pretty neat. But yeah, it remains to be seen whether or not Thing in the Ice can continue to make an impact, as you said, in the face of Thalia. Yeah. And I think Thalia, 
is a great contributor to why Delver has been pushed out. I think that Delver decks have a hard... One of the ways that Mentor can overcome Aldrazi is to just be broken, right. you know? For one or turn, turn one or two Mentor, and the Eldrazi decks have a hard time coming back as long as the Mentor deck can play spells. The same is not true for Delver, right? right? The, the card Delver has a lot harder time racing 4s, 4s, and 5s five uh, than it could in against some of the old Workshop matchups. So I think there's a combination of factors conspiring to push Delver out of the metagame at the moment. That's everything we've got on the dailies, but let's talk about that premiere event. So let's talk about that premiere event from May 28th. Well, well, it's interesting. There have been really four major tournament events, vintage tournaments, since the restriction of Gollum. The two premiere events, the Bazaar Moxon and the NYSE. We're going to talk a lot about the NYSE, and we're going to talk about the premiere event right now. But these all paint a very interesting, together, an interesting picture of what's happening. So let's let's dive into the premiere event. Well, we've said it before, and let's say it again. Thank you to Matt Murray and Ryan Everhart for posting these metagame analyses of the of the premier events on yeah, the manager. It bears emphasis. You know, uh, people get confused about this point, so let's just be clear. For the vast, vast majority of vintage tournaments, we never had complete metagame breakdowns. Uh, and so mm-hmm. in the past, in our podcast, and my writing at least, I've talked about the vintage metagame. And every time I've used that term, I've really been talking about top eight decks. And, you know, it's just become a shorthand for top eight decks. Because if you think about it, no one ever really reported anything but top eight decks. I can think on the, on the top mm-hmm. of my head, you know, head just a handful of times in which we've actually had complete metagame breakdowns, just to name a few. One, I think at least one of the vintage championships, uh, Jason Jaco and Eternal Central got a complete breakdown. But even like at the largest ones, they only had like the top 100 or so decks, you know, not the full 500 mm-hmm. decks. The very, very first, you might remember this, Kevin, but the very first vintage championship that was at Gen Con that Carl Winter won, Ben Blyweiss did a complete breakdown. But that was that was inc- that was like one of the only times we ever had a complete metagame breakdown, you know. Mm-hmm. So. It's very yeah. rare that we ever actually had the whole thing. Yeah, and, and I think you and I are both still uh, guilty of referring to a top eight result as the metagame. Exactly. <laughs> repeatedly. We, we say the vintage metagame. <laughs> and it's just, it's ingrained. It is ingrained. And people get confused about it. I mean, yeah. there's someone on the Mandarin who says, you know, well, we've restricted lots of cards in the past based upon metagame performance. No, we don't. We, we, we do it based upon tournament performance, not metagame, metagame presence. So we just yeah. want to be exceptionally clear about that so we're not confusing people. But one of the upsides about all of this is that for the first time, we actually have complete metagame breakdown. You know, so we're mm-hmm. very grateful for that. I did the first, it's actually more than that, because I did the first metagame breakdown for the November, the first premiere event here. But what Matt and Ryan are providing is more than that. They're providing the win percentages against the field and then win percentage against other archetypes. So we have an unbelievable set of data here that we're going to present and share. So Yeah, well, let me just run down the, the big picture metagame stuff. This is large groupings by archetypes. So 65 total players. The highest percentage of that is 25 gush decks. 20. Now their groupings yeah. are not they're not always the same as ours. We've been d- differentiating mentor and delver and stuff. They have that detail, but I'm just grouping at their high level right now. So that's 38 and a half percent. That's yeah, they're combining gush. doomsday 
Ping and I is Delver mentor. Yeah. Yeah. 38.5%. Yep. Next one is 10 big blue decks. So we're talking about Grixis control or keeper style decks and maybe a few blue moon baked in there. 10 decks out of 65 is 15 and a half percent. Next largest grouping is Eldrazi, nine of them, or 13.8%. And in fourth place, Combo, eight of them, or 12.3%. So Gush at 38.5, Big Blue at 15, Eldrazi at 13.8, Combo at 12%. So you've got four four archetypes in, in about over over 10% of the meta game with Gush. He, they're, again, they're not disaggregating Gush, but Gush, uh, Big Blue, Combo, and Eldrazi. Yeah. Sh- shops now, in a tiny amount. Want- that's right. Shops in a tiny amount. If you want, I can break that down a little bit further just for everyone's benefit here. So, Because they do also have an archetype yes. breakdown. But after the big picture, let's look at individual yes. decks. So the largest single deck is Mentor. 17 out of 65 is 26%. Which is very consistent. So with that's the, very, yeah, very consistent with yeah, exactly to the daily results. 26%. Yep. Yep. It's almost exactly what the all, all you know, the three one or better results are for the dailies. The next is White Eldrazi. That's White Eldrazi with 8 out of 65 equals 12.3%, which is also very close to the Eldrazi numbers for May and June. So there's a lot of reinforcing results here. Tied with Eldrazi is Dark Petition with 8 equals 12.3%, also very similar to the May and June results for the dailies. After that, the numbers get quite small. Combo Control, so that's where your your Grixis-style Tezzeret-style decks goes. Six out of sixty-five, or nine point two. Yeah, almost, almost ten percent. Yep. Everything else is five uh, percent or less. That's so. Again, mentor on top with twenty-six percent. Dark petition yeah. and Eldrazi tied second yeah. at twelve and a half percent. So I mean, you've got you. We go from the April to May where we've got Eldrazi non-existent until until it, it has a huge surge to what is this again? Almost fourteen percent of the metagame. So it's incredible mm-hmm. shift we're seeing here. Now, the one standout there is that the dredge numbers are 2 out of 65, or 3%. That matches the the April and May type numbers, 3-4%, not the 19% spike so far in June. But I would imagine that June's dredge number is going to dip back closer to the single digits for the, once the full month but, is fleshed but, you out. Know, again, we've already made the point that the metagame percentage is not actually what's important. And you will explain why in a second. It's actually, what matters yeah. is performance. <laughs> I mean, because we've got decks here that are 2% of the, you know, two, 3% of the metagame and one of the best performing decks. So let's, let, let's, yeah. uh, let's turn to the performance, actually. Let's just get right to the percentage against the field and then we'll do the top eight. Okay. So the, the, one of the things they've calculated is performance. We've got performance against archetypes. We've also got performance against the field. So the the top performing deck in the metagame is not even close to the most popular. The top oh, we'll just go through the top performing deck. The number one best performing deck in the tournament is Dredge with the six with the seventy percent seven almost set, actually seventy one percent match win percentage against the field. And the way they've calculated is they've taken out mirror matches. So Dredge. <laughs> yeah, I don't think there are any so for Dredge. Dredge <laughs> again, this goes to this is late May, right? It's the best performing archetype in the tournament, and then we see a surge in June in the dailies and Dredge. So that that relationship makes sense right dredge dominates mm-hmm. the premiere and is doing really well in june dailies so dredge mm-hmm. in terms of match win percentage is the it's a tiny number but it's the best performing deck the second best performing deck is actually white eldrazi it's 63 64 percent of match win percentage so you've got dredge at the top 70 percent win percentage then you've got eldrazi it's 64 percent win percentage then you've got shops it's 62 percent win percentage and then the fourth place mm-hmm. best performing deck is gush so it's according to this data, the 
gush decks are in, in their actual win percentage against the field is 51.6 percent better just slightly better than than uh break even uh, so <laughs> so gush has fallen to the fourth best performing deck according to this particular tournament and right behind it at 50 percent is combo uh so those are the only archetypes that are actually uh, have a 50 percent or better win percentage pretty remarkable mm-hmm uh, pretty yeah. remarkable. But let's turn to the top eight because you know one of the things that we've always done historically is look at decks that are percentages of top eights. So it shouldn't surprise you that the winner, based upon the thing, the data we just presented, is Dredge. Are you surprised by that, Kevin? No, no, I'm not surprised. Uh, but I, I am basically not surprised at any deck winning a tournament here or yeah. there. Um, uh, Dredge is always, always present and always capable of catching people unawares. I don't think this particular list is especially <laughs> um, especially unusual or or noteworthy. It's a relatively straightforward list with well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Flamekin Zealot. It has well, two, I mean, <clears throat> it's a relatively straightforward list. It well, okay, that's unusual, <laughs> and I I would not attribute that no, to I'm success not. or vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that's a good point, but otherwise. The deck is Flamekin Zealot, two Dread Returns, no prized amalgam, nothing especially cute. There's four Icarids, pretty standard Dredger package, main deck Leyline of the Void, main deck Mental Misstep, which is one of uh, several flex slots in the deck. A lot of people have main deck Ingot Chewers, and there's two main deck Chain of Vapors. I mean, <clears throat> this is not a especially noteworthy deck, except for those two Serum Powders. Oh, yeah. But if you're gonna if you're gonna win, you know, run good, well, I guess. The, Dredge won the tournament, <laughs> but that's not the story. I mean, th- this may be the first Dredge win for a, a Power Nine event. But what's the story here, Kevin? <laughs> what's the story of this top eight? <laughs> yeah. The story here is the Eldrazi because fifty yes. percent <laughs> of this top eight. Hold on, fifty percent of this top eight is white Eldrazi with one more Eldrazi shop. Yeah, five of the top eight deck lists are Eldrazi. <laughs> Yeah, which is just crazy. So second place is White Eldrazi. Third place is Eldrazi Shops. And by Eldrazi Shops, we basically mean uh, a big mana shops deck with Thought Knots here. Fourth place, Grixis Pyromancer. I I alluded to that deck earlier. Fifth and sixth and seventh place, all White Eldrazi. Eldrazi. Eighth place, (laughs) Blue Blue Moon. Moon. Which is is one of these decks that just stays at like 3, 4, 5% on Magic Online and just continues to show up. But the big, you're absolutely right, the big story here is the breakout of White Eldrazi. Why did we not see this before, Kevin? (laughs) What explains this? (laughs) I wonder. (laughs) People love their Lodestone Golems. And if they can't have Lodestone Golems, they'll still gladly pay half as much mana for half as big a body (laughs) to get another one. (laughs) So, yeah, really, this is a combination breakout for the Eldrazi tribe, but also for Thalia. Thalia has sort of asserted herself as a premier vintage card. I mean, she's always been very heavily played in Legacy, but now she's made a statement, and she is out in force, and she is, I mean, this White Eldrazi just dominated the, the Gush deck. So, it's important to actually show the performance here. You know, we, you know, part of this may be a reaction to Gush, right? So let's break this out. The White Eldrazi decks, win percentage, do you, do you happen to know what it is, Kevin, just off the top of your head without looking? The win percentage against the field for the White Eldrazi deck? No, against... Oh, against yeah. Gush? Against, oh. Yeah, it's right. Against the Boy, field. Boy, no, I don't know it offhand, but my guess is it's 70 yeah, plus. Yeah, exactly right. The win percentage of Eldrazi against Gush is, you're exactly right, 71.43% or 72%. That is massive. Yeah. Wow. That is massive. And then against Combo, <laughs> remember, you pointed to the DPS surge in May, right? Well, it's win percentage against yeah. Combo. 
is 70 exact same percentage 71.43%. So the two the two decks that were kind of like the top best performing decks overall in dailies, you know, gush decks and in, in in combo decks are just getting slaughtered mm-hmm. by Weldel Wide Eldrazi. Yeah. You know, gush gush was a pretty good deck to play unless you want to face Eldrazi and then you get just get destroyed. Um, so, I mean, to have a in vintage vintage deck, this is bears emphasis. Vintage is a format where it's really hard to have a seventy percent win percentage. Like even if you're a really really big favorite, you're usually like a sixty one percent, sixty two percent at most, right? I mean, like like even <laughs> right. a huge right. favorite. But to have a seventy two, I mean, you never see eighty percent win percentages with big big data. Right. And have 72 percent, that's about as much as you could possibly get. Right. Because it includes people who are just completely, you know, new with a deck. They make a lot of mistakes or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out that that is it's still not a very, very large sample right. size. There were there are nine of these Eldrazi decks in right. the event. There were 25 gush decks there. We don't no, it's not definitive. Uh, Their matchup. Yeah. <laughs> No, their matchup happened 20 times, according to these results. Yes, that's not small. Eldrazi versus Gush. That's not small. I mean, 20 20 matches is, you know, that's reasonable sample size. But it's it's reinforcing what everyone knows about that, and that is these Thorn and Sphere Thalia-based decks prey on Gush decks. I mean, that's just just one of those things we've known. And Storm. Well, and Storm, yeah. I want to point something out though. Yeah. So the we we're referring to White Eldrazi as a as a monolithic thing here, but there are reasonably two to three different White Eldrazi decks in That's this true. result set. You want to- the second yeah the second place deck has really it's closer to Eldrazi Tribal plus Thalia because the creature base uh, twenty four creatures true. are three Displacers, yeah. four Mimics, four Endless Ones, which is noteworthy, four Reality Smashers, one Spirited Lab. Four Thalias and four Thought Not Seers. So if you're keeping score, that's eight. That's eight white creatures. Right. Yeah. But only five non-Eldrazi. Right. But the other decks, if you go just a little bit down the standings, if you go to fifth place, there's two decks that are very similar here. Twenty-five creatures, three Containment <laughs> Priest, four Displacer, one Lodestone Golem, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, four Revokers, four Reality Smashers, three Thalias, four Thought Not Seers. Two Vryn Wingmare. Yeah, that's a very, very different creature configuration. In fact, all it has in common are the four Smashers and four th- Seers and four Displacers. So those big twelve Eldrazi, but no Mimics, yeah. no Endless yeah. Ones, and in their place, white creatures: Containment Priest, Vryn Wingmare, and oh, there's only three Eldrazi in this list. Or sorry, three Thalia in this list. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Eldrazi, and I there's a what you're saying though is there's a spectrum, right? That runs from like tribal yes. white tribal Eldrazi. It's actually more than a spectrum because it's multidimensional, right? It, it veers into yeah. shops, and then another quarter yeah. of the triangle is is tribal, and then another quarter of the triangle is more white weenie with some with uh, or, or white hate bears with uh, Eldrazi in it. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna explore all facets of that triangle, but you flagged it. We're gonna get it. We're gonna get. To- <laughs> We'll, we'll get, get there. there. I want to stay focused on some of these win percentages. The the other thing I just want to point out is that, you know, there's a lot to point out here, but Eldrazi's win percentage against Gush is certainly notable. Against Combo's obvious. Mm-hmm. But its win percentage against Dredge is the other piece of the equation. According to the <laughs> according to the premier events, you know, it's essentially the flip of the Gush. It had twenty percent win percentage against Dredge. So Dredge is the solution to White Eldrazi. If people are trying to figure out how do I beat these White Eldrazi decks, it's Dredge. 
And that explains, I believe, the rise of Dredge in June. This White Eldrazi deck is the solution to Gush. Dredge is the solution to White Eldrazi. And then, <laughs> but here's, it doesn't complete the loop, though, because although Gush had a winning, perc- winning percentage against Dredge here, as we'll see in the, uh, in the uh, NYSE, Gush actually had a losing percentage against Dredge as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're trying to yeah. figure out how to per- position yourself in this metagame, it's very hard. <laughs> yeah. But there's one other thing I want to point out. Okay, okay, there's a combination of two things, as it will relate very soon to NYSE, and that is Shops versus Eldrazi. Yes. So there's a grouping here called Shops in this breakdown, but it, it includes yes. a couple of Thought Not Seer shop decks. There's a, yeah, there's only a very, very few shop decks in the whole tournament. In fact, there were two. Yeah. <laughs> but... <laughs> But the win okay. percentage of workshops versus Eldrazi is, is 100%. <laughs> flawless. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, that really was only two matches, though. But it went 2-0 against Eldrazi. And more to the point, third place in this event is Montolio on Eldrazi yes. Shops. And that takes the form of four Ravagers, three Walkers, one Lodestone, four Revokers, four Thought Not Seers, and four Trikes. So this is a this is a Ravager Shops deck with Thought Not Seers and four trikes, which is notable from a narrative standpoint as we go into this deck the NYC. Obviously, very successful with Montolio at the helm in this premier event, getting third place. And it uh, two people I think played it in the um, in the VSL because it was so good, right? So. <laughs> And it's it's also worth noting that Montolio lost to the eventual winner Dredge. Uh, he did not lose to uh, White Eldrazi in the top eight. So yeah. you you in this event you kind of have the seeds of what's going to blossom next, right? I mean, so you can kind of see where we're going. Right. Eldrazi White Eldrazi dominates the event, smashes the gush decks out of the top eight. There's only one gush deck in this entire top eight. <laughs> so much for gush yeah. dominance. Yeah. And then after being 38 and a half percent of the metagame, of the metagame it got crushed. Yeah. And then. Uh, and then we see the two decks that are actually successful against it, which are the Eldrazi Shops and Dredge. Mm-hmm. Uh, so do you want to continue to break down, or should we, should we just pivot to the NYSE? I think we just pivot straight to the NYSE, because that continues this narrative in a very, very real way. If many very, very real ways. to begin we don't we do have we have a full metagame breakdown which is which is awesome so there's that so we can talk about very similar metrics to the premiere event uh thanks again to uh, ryan and matt for doing this similar work for the paper event which is awesome yeah. so let's talk about the metagame i guess let's follow the same path that we did for the premiere event there were 157 competitors in the nyse open number four Metagame-wise, the breakdown, first place is Gush decks, 51. 32.5%, which is pretty close. You know, it's interesting because this comes a week after the the um, a week after the premier event, right? I mean, the MTGO Power 9. And so you see, you know, in that event, right. Gush was 38%. Now it's fallen to 32.5, which is, I think, closer to where it's going to be in June. It's going to be, you know, under 30%. So th- these events sort of like are moments in time that track these decks' progressions. But keep going. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's the most second most popular deck is uh, Big Blue or Blue Control 
with 25 decks, that is 15.9%. Yeah. Blue, blue control mm-hmm. always shows up more in paper events because I think part of it is you get people who are big blue control pilots and they don't necessarily yeah. grind in the dailies or the premieres, but they have all the cards and they come out in force and they do can do pretty well. Yep. And I mean, that's why if you look at the Vintage Championship last year, like there were multiple blue control decks in the, like the top not 10 decks, you know, that, that just don't appear in the MTGO metagame. So it's the second most popular. Yeah. Big blue, you know, so much for, you know, it be its demise. People still play it. 16% is the second <laughs> most popular deck in the in archetype in the in the environment. So. And third place is a three-way tie. <laughs> at 17 decks, that is 10.8 or 11% of the metagame, there's a three-way tie between Workshops, Combo, I love and Eldrazi. It. I love it. What an amazing metagame. Yeah. You've got Gush at the most popular deck, but then you've got 16% Big Blue, 11% Combo, 11% Eldrazi, and 11% Shops. And if you combine the Thorn decks mm-hmm. together, they're about 23 24%, which is what we've always had for Shop decks. <laughs> it really is, right. And then just to round things out after that, there's another tie for, I guess that would be sixth place, 11 dredge decks and 11 oath right. decks. That's 7%. It, then there were seven null rod decks and one other, and it, the, we do, which was a rector flash deck. <laughs> and we do have a complete breakdown of the gush decks. So if you break down the gush decks, there were 30, 34 oh, yeah. mentor decks or 21.7% of the metagame, which is, I think, actually where mentor decks are going to be at the end of June, about 20%. Yep. So, you know? Right. 22-ish percent is very, very close to the Magic Online daily results. Everything else was a knit uh, after Mentor. There were five Delvers, four combo Gush decks, like Gush Tendrils, three Pyromancer decks. We've talked about those. Uh, three other gush decks. I don't know what those are. And two Thing in the Ice. So we got two appearances of Thing in the Ice at the NYSE Open. Yeah. <laughs> thing in the Ice, unfortunately, so, is, not done, is not thought out. Yeah. Let's talk about these this win percentages. This is really incredible. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you want to begin, think we Steve? Should, I think we should do what I just did. Let's start with the best performing deck and just go down. Okay, go ahead. The best performing deck, you know, as we saw before in the in the... Premier event, it was Dredge at 70% against the field, the, and followed by Shops at 63%, and then Eldra- sorry, Eldrazi at 63%, and Shops at about 70, 62%. Shops in this event, in 11% of the metagame, had a 68.3% match win percentage against the field. That is, oh, is huge. huge. I mean, that's huge. I yeah. mean, that's unheard of. Uh, that's that's by far and away the best performing deck in vintage in the metagame. Now that's going to shift, of course, and we're, we'll talk about weaknesses yeah. it has, if any. <laughs> but but what's so uh-huh. amazing here, the key storyline is that we're talking about a deck, workshops, workshop aggro decks that got hammered with restrictions. They got lodestone golem restricted, chalice restricted, and two months, almost two months of the day after uh, lodestone golem was restricted online. It's now the best performing deck in vintage, far pretty far and away actually. It's for, for this, this event, event. It's sixty eight percent. So just amazing that shops continues to. I mean, you could just say it dominated this field in terms of win percentage, and that would be a fair statement. Mm-hmm. Um, the second best performing deck in terms of match win percentage is Eldrazi, White Eldrazi. It's fifty eight point nine percent, fifty nine percent of the metagame, and that's amazing because you just had a week before. Eldrazi completely dominated an event, and yet it continues this enormous surge, right? Like, <laughs> right. like so you would think everyone in this event would be gunning for White Eldrazi, but to have it continue to do well is just incredible, right? I feel like there's, a, there's different ways you can quote-unquote gun for something, right. as you put it. 
I feel like many people were, and I feel like many people failed. I feel like going into this event, the deck was still a little too fresh, and probably people didn't have enough time to test and come up with very reliable I solutions. I mean, it was only a week. I yeah. think... And there was probably yeah. uncertainty as to whether so, people on paper would adapt. But th- but this answers one of those well, questions, right? With 17 Wild Eldrazi's, they adapted. <laughs> well, that's true. But in, what we alluded to just a moment ago from the premiere event is White Eldrazi had not solidified around one right. list. There were d- distinctly three different lists in the right. top eight of those four. And so you're you know you're hitting a moving target true, or you're trying true. to so I, I you know I don't blame people for not being able to solve that particular matchup for any other deck right. really now I do believe that shops are inherently advantaged in that matchup if you're talking about the bigger mana bigger creature kind of versions but it's it's still close and it's not dominant well. In this tournament, it is dominant, but I think both decks can still jockey for position in the bigger picture. So we, the best performing deck in the entire metagame in this event was Shops. The second best performing was White Eldrazi. So the Thorn, the Thorn archetype is dominating yeah. the format in terms of win percentage, and it's it shows up at about 22% of the metagame. The next best performing deck in terms of matchup win percentage is Dredge. It's 52%. Mm-hmm. Now that seems like a pretty steep fall from um, the winning the the Power <laughs> Nine event, but there were 11. It's a much larger, it's a much sample, larger size. sample size. We got 11 dredge decks in the tournament, 7% of the metagame, and they had a, win, a, a you know an emphatically win a positive win, winning percentage when most of the decks in the environment didn't. So dredge <laughs> dredge shows up as the third best archetype. We still haven't gotten to a blue deck yet. We've got shop decks, white Eldrazi decks, and dredge is the best performing decks. The best performing blue deck in the environment, Kevin, is Oath. Oath, Oath, Oath of Druids. And we've talked a lot about this. We've talked a lot about how Oath is just so unfairly hampered on Magic Online. Now, we, we can't say that yeah. that explains this entirely, but there was at least, we have a breakdown of the Oath decks, right? And according yeah. to this, at least there, one of them was Salvager's Oath. <laughs> that's right. There, The Oath decks broke down. So the, in total, we're talking about 11 Oath decks. There were four Omni Oath. So those are show and tell Omni, Omni Science decks. The next one in that grouping is Oath Still, <laughs> which is really a head scratcher for me. Three Oath Still decks, then one one each of Salvagers, Odd Oath, Control Oath, and Oath Combo. I really don't know what the latter two yeah. are, but they're it, you know, probably defying standard yeah. lists. Yeah, but Omni Oath is the standard right. at the moment. But but Oath again, it, it it's showing up here is the the fourth best performing deck in the entire tournament. And I think people forget about it. You know, we focus so much on the Magic Online events. Let's not forget that Oath has actually won the last two Vintage Championships in 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 mm-hmm. metagames that were dominated by Gush and Shops, right? Let's not forget that. Yeah. We cannot forget that. Now, and, and I don't want to put too much emphasis on Oath. Okay, it is clearly the top performing blue of the blue-based blue decks, but its win percentage against the field is 50.7%. Yeah. Now, in my opinion, 50% is not a good <laughs> match no, win percentage, no, no. right? <laughs> so as you approach 50%, I think it is noteworthy how poorly you're doing. And it's noteworthy that everything else in the deck, all the other gush decks, all the other blue control decks were below 50%. In some cases, significantly yeah. so. Yeah. Big no, Blue true. had a win percentage of 43.2%. And it's also hard to draw any from conclusion because, as you pointed out, there's so many different Oath decks here. It's not they're far from one deck. It's true. But... But we, we should just people shouldn't forget about Oath. Oath is out there. Oath is 
pretty, we'll get to the how it did against other decks specifically. But let's get to the fifth best performing deck. So the fifth <laughs> best performing deck in this in this environment was the Gush decks, at forty six point five percent of the meta game. Uh, sorry, not not by the so game. Win, a, a match lose... percentage, win, win percentage against. Yeah, the, so a losing record against. against the yeah, field. losing against the field. Fifth best performing. I, I have to say, just as an editorial. This event and the previous event have kind of destroyed the argument that Gush is a dominant deck. It is by far the most prevalent deck, but its performance yeah. is anything but dominant. You can't call a deck that has a 46% win percentage against the field dominant and is the fifth best performing match win percentage deck dominant. And th- this is the kind of insight that only a full metagame report can exactly. give you. Exactly, so it's very appreciative yeah. to the people who com- uh, compiled it. But let's just quickly go through the yeah. rest of the, pr- the best performing decks. Um, the next best performing decks were blue control and combo at about 43% match win percentage against the field. And then everything again, mm-hmm. everything else against the field was below that. Um, so now let's let's break it down. Let's try and get behind the numbers a little bit and see see what's beating what, at least in this event. So again, just to mm-hmm. recap, the narrative that we had was White Eldrazi was smashing Gush. Shops and Dredge were beating White Eldrazi. Does that bear out here? Let's look at it. So let's start with yeah. let's start with Gush's win percentage against these various decks. Gush's win percent let's let's flip it actually. Shop's win percentage against Gush is a massive <laughs> 71%. So Gush mm-hmm. decks are getting crushed by Shops. Um the Gush decks are also getting crushed by White Eldrazi. The White Eldrazi deck had a 68% win percentage against Gush. We already knew that, though. Yep. The NY- the Premier event told us that. The NYSE reinforces it. Gush decks get crushed by these yep. decks. But how did the Shop and Eldrazi decks do against, say, Dredge? Let's look at that. Dredge? Go ahead. Terribly for Shops, for some reason. <laughs> Go ahead. What's the what's the stat? Shops win percentage versus Dredge for this whole event was 28.5%. Right. 28.5%. <laughs> That was that's two wins that Shop got against Dredge in the right. event where Dredge got five wins. Right. And the other di- 28%. the other dyad that we looked at was Shops against El- White Eldrazi, right? We saw remember Shops had a hundred percent win percentage against White Eldrazi. Well <laughs> Right. In in the, the premier event. event. Yeah. In this event they had an eighty three point three three percent win percentage. So it's pretty close in terms of you know <laughs> in terms of if you're over 80 percent, that's an enormous win percentage so shop right. that's that shops going 10 and 2 against white eldrazi, eldrazi. so shops are crushing yeah. white eldrazi um period and i think they've actually yep. included tribal eldrazi here which may may explain the the two losses there's only one eldrazi. tribal eldrazi it's one that we're going to talk right. about at length <laughs> well, what's the, the story here was, is that the shops deck is crushing gush and it's crushing White Eldrazi, but it's losing hard to Dredge. What about Eldrazi and Dredge? Remember, we saw Dredge crushing White Eldrazi. That that stat has actually reversed. Well, yeah, I think <clears throat> for a number of reasons. But Eldrazi versus Dredge is at 72.73%. So 73% wind percentage. That's Eldrazi going 19 wins <laughs> and three losses versus That's Dredge. That's unbelievable. So we've had a complete flip. So if you were looking at the premier event and saying, well, Dredge is the answer to the Eldrazi and Shot Menace, this this mm-hmm. suggests some serious caution. That I think w- without having access to literally every list, <laughs> I think part of that aspect is that the white Eldrazi lists in this event seem to have consolidated a bit closer to the 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 Vryn Wingmare style list that has main deck containment priest. And I think I think perhaps that some Eldrazi players 
with main deck containment priests had almost nothing else in their board for the dredge matchup, feeling very confident in their priests. Yeah. And yeah. then and then dredge wins the yeah. premier event over four different Eldrazi yeah. decks. And I imagine a few other players said, okay, maybe we need a little bit more than these three main deck priests for this, this matchup. Is, this is just <laughs> chaos, though. I mean, you've got these huge swings, right? I mean, back and forth. I think you're right. I think that the white Eldrazi just broke out and then people consolidated a bit. And now we're seeing some patterns play out. But what I think is critical, let's, we're going to finish all this, but I just want to say this here, is that this is a massive upheaval. This is vintage in flux, right, Kevin? Yeah, so This definitely. is vintage. In, in it, it's, it, We need to know where it's going to land. We need to know where it's going to settle. But I think w- w- one of the things we're going to say is that we don't know where it's going to settle. Things are so dynamic right now. And the, the restriction of Lodestone Golem has set in motion all these events. And it's it's just incredible to see all this play out. But let's continue to break this down, right? So yeah. so the Eldrazi deck versus Shops had a horrible match win percentage. You know, it, it won six, <laughs> 17% of its its matches. Uh, it crushed Gush. It crushed Dredge. It crushed Blue Control. It crushed mm-hmm. Combo. It crushed. It had a 50% win percentage against Oath. It was not that great against Null Rods, but it's only White Eldrazi deck's only weakness in this entire event was Shops. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's beating. This deck is here to stay. I mean, this White Eldrazi deck Definitely. is good. Now, now, what about the Shops deck? The Shops deck crushed Gush, got crushed by Dredge, crushed Blue Control, crushed Combo, crushed Oath, and destroyed White Eldrazi. It only had one weakness, Dredge. So the right. Shops and the Eldrazi decks are by far the best performing decks with only one weakness each. <laughs> and it, it, it sort of loops around right there, right? With Shops yep. blue, crushing White Eldrazi, White Eldrazi crushing dredge and dredge crushing shops i don't know how you break into that triangle i don't know where you break in right (laughs) because whatever deck you choose you have a losing matchup a a losing matchup that is a significant portion of the metagame right right? possibly the second most popular deck in the metagame (laughs) we didn't even mention this but dredge in this event had a 54 53 percent win percentage against gush so all four of those decks beat gush Gush, Gush had yeah. a losing win percentage against Chops, losing win percentage against Dredge, losing win percentage against Eldrazi, miserable against Eldrazi and Chops, and a losing win percentage against Combo at 45% win percentage. So <laughs> so according to this this data, Gush loses to, well, almost everything. Almost yeah, everything. It, <laughs> the only, yeah, the only thing was, Gush beat Oath? was was Oath, and it just over 50% against Blue Control, and then it clobbered the seven Null Rod yeah. decks in yeah. the event at, at 81%. It actually had one of the highest win percentages of any one yeah. matchup. That is Gus versus Nullrod. That's the second highest win percentage that isn't a hundred percenter. This is insane. I mean, these, these, <laughs> it's funny. hilarious, and this shows you the disjuncture between performance and pro- pre- uh, prevalence, right? I mean, if you were just looking at the yes. metagame data, you'd say, "Whoa, Gush is dominant." It's like thirty-two percent of the metagame. Well, it's mm-hmm. losing to everything. <laughs> yeah. For that reason, it's surprising that there are still four Gush decks in this well, top eight. But I think that has a bit to do with, I mean, we're looking at aggregate percentages, and any one player can defy well, the odds, of course, but also just the large proportion of the metagame. So let's, yeah, let's talk about the top eight, because the top eight, the winner of this event was the was Montolio, who got third place in the in the, in the premier event. With, with And he won this with basically right. the same So deck. Gush has not won any of these tournaments. It didn't win the Bizarre Boxing, it didn't win the MTGO Power 9, and it didn't win this. Right. And, and Montolio, it kind of is the perfect representative, the perfect, uh, I was going to say symbol, but he's actually the perfect avatar for this for this archetype, <laughs> right? I mean, it, nice. um, 
but it's interesting. Indraj, of course, got third, so we'll t- we'll break down. But the the at the outset, like at round seven, it looked like just it looked to me like Eldrazi was going to dominate this top eight again because we had uh, we had White Eldrazi, Andy Probasco at first place in the Swiss, right? And the mm-hmm. unfortunately, the two other shop in Eldrazi players, ninth and tenth, who were who they drew themselves in the ninth and tenth place. If either if they play it out, one of them is going to be in the top eight, knocking out Brian Kelly. So if Brian Schlossberg and Jason Jaco had actually played their last round match, instead of thinking they could ID in the top eight, we would have had four shop Eldrazi decks in the top eight, three Gush and one Dredge, which is essentially, you know, a piece, a big piece of the metagame right now. Right. Uh, other, among the other narratives for this top eight, it was won by Andy Markinton. Andy Markinton, excuse me, that's Montolio. Better known as Montolio. He defeated, yeah. <laughs> you're right. And he defeated Tom Matelski. That is IB true on Magic Online. So we had a a, a paper <laughs> vintage event, a large paper vintage event, where two very successful, yeah, two very successful online players met in the finals. And Montolio, obviously, uh, Andy, we've talked about a him lot. a lot. With all a lot in in all of our podcasts going to the last year, we're like Montolio is distorting the MTGO data sets. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Well, now he's. This is like Neo coming out of the Matrix. Yeah. He's, he's come into real life, and he can still control the machines. <laughs> but there's also two other noteworthy Magic Online players in this top eight. Andy Probasco goes by Unrestricted it's Gifts. Interesting that you call he him is... an online player. I consider him a paper player. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that's granted. Uh, but I'm just talking to specifically our audience who focuses on magic online which is fine uh many of you would know andy because he's one of the most uh popular streamers out there for vintage and and the owner of the metadrain and and community staple and vsl vsl prelim competitor as we've said in the past he is a lowercase and uppercase vintage player also of note vito picozo who is a longtime paper player but also in one of the vintage championships i believe yep that's right that's right and Vito goes by V is for Vintage online. He is uh, has some pretty good results online as well. So he, lo- he lost. Is- he was playing uh, a traditional mentor Pyromancer deck, and he lost to Andy Markiton in the top eight. So shops showing yeah. its strength against Gush there. Yeah. And and you haven't gotten to one of the most famous top eight per people here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. But what what I'm focusing on though is the fact that these online players, these Magic Online players, are uh, putting up results in the real world. Now, as you alluded to, Brassman and Vito, these are and, not... And Roland Chang. Roland Chang. I know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm just talking about yeah. the online players. I don't consider Roland to be an Fair. online player. <laughs> Roland, if, if you have a Magic Online account, I apologize. But my point is simply, this is continuing a trend that started a while back, that, that people who have had success on Magic Online and Vintage are having success in paper events yep. as well. Um, but but also, yeah, the rest of the top eight includes Ryan Glacken, who's putting he's, up He's a uh, perennial uh, top eight appearance player. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Hank Zong, who's a name that I didn't know. Uh, do you I know Hank before this no. tournament? Okay, sorry about that, Hank, but we've got your record now. And then uh, some, just some fantastic old-school people. Roland Chang, everyone should know, former vintage champion and legacy champion, and Brian Kelly, current vintage champion. So this is a, this is a really great stacked top eight with top performers, old and new. We've got some old names like Andy Probasco. Roland Chang's been around the block. Several of these people have. 
but and the current top yeah. competitors like Brian Kelly <laughs> and, <laughs> and others who are performing well online. This is a great it's top amazing. Eight. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's and then yeah. and as you said, uh, Brian Schlossberg and Jason Jaco in ninth and tenth. We're, uh, you know, we don't yeah. want to uh, belittle them because oh, we're not going to belittle uh, them. If anything, we're going to get more attention. We think yeah. That, yeah, we think that maybe if they had played, uh, this topic would have shaken out a lot differently. Well, just to just to emphasize the point, so the top ten decks we have, so the, the ninth and first place player were playing almost the same deck. They were on a team together, uh, and you know, so who knows what would have happened if Brian had made top eight. Um, but so first. Uh, First place, fifth place, sixth place, ninth place, and tenth place are all shop or Eldrazi decks. So five of the top at ten, and then an eleventh yeah. place was a dredge deck. So if you look at the top eleven, <laughs> you get a very different picture than if you just look at the top eight. You know, because there's two gush decks yeah. in the top four and four in the top eight, but but overall, I mean, shop, yeah, shops top, and Eldrazi dominate this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so we have to talk about Jason Jaco's deck. Uh. (laughs) he narrowly missed top eight and for those of you who are on twitter you've seen this thing going around in picture form a great deal because it's been the talk of the town jaco played unpowered budget tribal eldrazi it was it was both unpowered (laughs) but also and we make that distinction because it means it doesn't have any mox or lotus in it it also doesn't have mishra's workshop or bizarre time any imperial seal any high price card this is (laughs) yeah this is a legit budget deck in vintage and he was what was he six and one going into the last round is that right himself into into 10th place (laughs) 10th place yeah sadly so had he played and you know we don't want to be too results oriented about who would have won well, that actually, matchup? Because it was be. Ravager Shops. It can be Eldrazi. because they actually played after the top eight, and and yeah. and actually Jaco won 2-0 and brought for fun. And Brian said after the tournament, he says he thinks he's probably a 20% dog. So he he, he thinks he can <laughs> wow. barely win that match at all. Yeah, Jaco's on record saying that he enjoys the matchup that that Tribal Eldrazi deck has. This against is Workshops. clearly the most inter- to me the most interesting deck in this tournament, and it got tenth place. I mean, we've seen Andy yeah. it, you know Markenton in Montolio get third place with his deck in the previous event. So Kevin, why don't you just read this deck list and then we'll discuss it in depth. All right, so. Four Jason Jaco's Tribal Eldrazi deck, one Chalice of the Void, four Null Rods, which is noteworthy, three Dismember, three Warping Whale, that's in the main deck, one Crucible of Worlds, two Phyrexian Metamorph. Here come the Eldrazi. <laughs> two, four Eldrazi Mimic, two Matter Reshaper, four Endless One, four Thought Not Seer, four Reality Smasher, three Endbringer, <laughs> personal favorite of mine. These cards are and nuts. And then the land. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then the lands. Four ancient tombs, four Eldrazi temples, three Eye of Ugin, two Urborgs, four Cavern of Souls, one Strip Mine, four Wasteland, and three Ghost Quarter. Clearly, there are many things to point to here. Let's talk about the non-powered element. Yes. Whenever you're non-powered yeah. in Vintage, you're heavily incentivized to be running Null Rod or Stony Silence. He has four Null Rods here. Also, whenever you're unpowered, you're incentivized to have a few more lands than usual. So in addition to the tombs and the temples, yeah. which tap for two, got and a lot the, of land. the eyes, which yeah. effectively tap for two, he's got four caverns, which you would definitely want in any creature tribal deck in Vintage, two Urborgs to help his eyes tap for more mana, or to help him get out of tapping an ancient tomb for mana in certain cases, 
But then it's really important to note the full strip waste package plus three ghost quarters. So four null rods plus eight strip yeah. effects means this deck is heavily disruptive to oh. your mana. But you'll note that it doesn't have any thorns. Yep. So there's no, no sphere slash thorn effects in this whole deck. It's just playing large creatures and disrupting your lands and disrupting your moxen. And then there's three dismembers and three warping whales as additional disruption yeah. or removal. No, this, this deck is brilliant. Yeah. brilliant. I mean, I, I, yeah. I want to, let's start with the, there's a lot to unpack here. A lot to talk about Aldrazi. We're going to talk about matchups some more, metagame selection, deck selection, a lot more, but let's just focus mm-hmm. on this one piece for a second. So you've got the big picture. This is an Eldrazi tribal deck. It's got a lot of beef, a lot of power, a lot of disruption, a lot of removal, yeah. a lot of mana disruption but not thorn effects let's focus on the unpowered element so not only does it have no power meaning it doesn't have a black lotus it doesn't have moxen it doesn't even have soul ring or mana crypt <laughs> okay so <laughs> yeah now, it's it's one thing to say no power but but as kai buddha said in the in the vsl i mean mana crypt is the best card in, El, in the eldrazi deck you know that that we had known before this event. What's the take on that, Kevin? Should this deck have a mana crypt? Should this deck have soul ring? Now, Jaco's explanation for no soul ring is it's something your opponents can misstep, and it would be the only misstep target in this right. list. Mana crypt is inexplicable to me. I don't I don't know why you wouldn't have mana crypt. I, mean, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I don't know the way this deck plays out quite well enough to say with certainty, but there's a chance that your life total is more of an issue than we might be giving him credit for. What with four tombs and three dismembers in the main. But he does, that's true, but he has a lot of beef. I mean, he's got... He does, and I know this deck could end games yeah. fast. Uh, well, let's, there's also four well, null rods. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be, it could be, and I don't want to put words into to Jayco's mouth here. It could be that he was very interested in being totally unpowered yeah well but, but the <laughs> crypt is not and, a piece of power <laughs> well even, i know it's, even, it's great it's a great it's great not a, i mean it's not even remotely power in my opinion workshops more power than meta crypt but i hear you it's a restricted oh, mana artifact accelerant some yeah. semantics yeah um but i also agree with you that it seems tailor-made Absolutely. for this deck right Turn one, it, it, it turn facilitates one so many more turn yeah, you one you can do turn one Blood Not Seer, yeah. turn two Null Rod. That's a fine use of Mana Crypt. It's done its job. Or you can do turn one Mimic and Null Rod yeah, that's on fine. the play. That's... And then turn two, even though your Mana Crypt's off, you can still yeah. just play a Temple and play yeah. a Thought Not Seer exactly. on turn two. And bash in. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that Mana Crypt seems very good for this deck, but I have no experience playing this deck, so I'll defer to Jacob. Let's Jaco. just set that aside. We can't resolve that issue. Yeah. You know, time will resolve that yeah. issue. But here's here's the yeah. key. Here's the key. And I think it's so easy to lose sight of this. This is this deck is possibly the most remarkable deck. So first of all, if he he, he says he cr- crushes shops, if he had made top eight, he very he could have gone through just a shop top eight and won this event. Okay, his deck against Dredge yeah. is insane. Regardless of what, <laughs> yeah. What, regardless of whether he won this event or not, he could have won this event. That so. is the most... This deck, in, in the era of Magic Online, I think it's so easy to lose sight of what's so amazing about this deck. Because in Magic Online, you can build a fully powered deck for like $1,000, right? Right. For the entire time I have been playing the format called Type 1, previously just Magic Constructed, one of the biggest barriers to this format has always been Moxon. Even when Moxon were like $60 a piece and Black Lotus was 120 <laughs> it was like, I remember I had Moxon. Everyone in my circle had Moxon. We all, in the early days of Type 1 and pre-Type 1, we all had power. But there were people out there who didn't. 
And they were always like, what can yeah. I build on a budget? And then in the early 2000s, what can I build on a budget? People built late mid-90s. They build like Suicide Black, Sly, Burn. You know, people were always trying to find what can I build on a budget that doesn't require power? And there was a, you know, you go read Oscar Tan's archive. He has article after article after article on budget decks you can play in vintage. Stompy, Sly, Suicide Black. And other decks. And when Dredge came out, it was a paradigm shift because it was the first deck that you could play with just bazaars and no power. This, but but then bazaars were like, even then bazaars were like $150 or something, right? I mean, I remember when you and yeah. I were trading like workshops and bazaars, we were hoarding them like in 2001 and 2002. <laughs> I, I remember I had like six, seven workshops and bazaars at one point, and I was trading bazaars and workshops because they were worth about the same. They're like $120, $150 a piece. Even then those were expensive. This is the most, this is the holy grail of what type one and vintage was looking. This is the mytho- mythological object of a optimal <laughs> budget and unpowered deck that has never heretofore existed in this format to my knowledge ever ever in the 23 24 years i've been playing this this game i have never seen anything like this this is the first time it's completely unprecedented kevin have you <laughs> the i would like to caveat that by saying you know we have seen a a individual deck spike an event here or yeah. there through that time yeah. period right and it's up op- but it's optimally unpowered and budget optimally uh yeah no i agree with you not optimally we're talking about yeah. white green hate yes. bears, right that is a better deck when it has a pearl or yes. a lotus yes. in it right so to, to your point I, I do think this is unprecedented for that very reason um there are probably listeners of ours who who would be or doing or shouting into their uh headphones right now that this deck would be better with a lotus <laughs> And I don't think that's correct. Yeah, I mean, correct. Lotus cannot, does not generate colorless. <laughs> that's why it Man- can't that's cast what... any of the creatures. I mean, without another yeah, colorless. Yeah, that's why Mana Crypt, I think, would be better. <laughs> I don't think Lotus is right in this deck. I do think you can make a case for Mana Crypt, but, but setting all, I mean, I don't want to overemphasize those nitpicks, really, because to your point, this is a drastic difference between decks in the past that were based on white and green heavily yes. and that were demonstrably better with a pearl or an emerald right. or a lotus. And I do think you're right in the fact that that's an unprecedented feature. And the Eldrazi, I mean, that's just one of the of many things that the Eldrazi do to magic because they are effectively a sixth yep. color. <laughs> and, they're, and it's a color that we don't have a mox. We were way for. off on our, on our predictions for Eldrazi. <laughs> right. And it's a, right, and it's our color that, uh, a color that Black Lotus can't sack yeah. for. So that has unprecedented precedented Black, effects about Black it. Lotus does not make the cut in this deck. And legitimately, yeah. it's like, Black Lotus, that's not good enough. That's <laughs> not good enough. <laughs> so I would like to say that I agree with you about the unprecedented nature of this deck. I, I'm not yet ready to say that this deck is uh, a long-term contender just because, just because we have a single sure, performance sure. by a single player. And, a and there's, reason to think, there's reason to think it might not be as good against some matchups. For example, the lack of sure. thorn effects raises questions of whether this deck is probably not as good against the gush decks as the Eldrazi or Shops. It would be hard to be as good, right? I mean, the Eldrazi and Shops are crushing sure. gush at like 70% win percentages. This deck... Yeah, I, it would be, yeah it'd be unreasonable to expect this to be that, that good. good against them. It still has game, right? Nullrod, Chalice, uh, Thought Not Seer. These are yeah, still I mean, disruptive. The disruptive aspect. Well, I think the thing that I've been most impressed about in the last couple of weeks is that these decks are not just big fat creatures. 
these decks are very disruptive. So I'll give you an example. This is kind of a cute yeah. and cool story. I played in the NYSC. had a great time. I played combo. Um, I watched a game where Paul Mastriano, who played White Eldrazi, was playing against Craig Berry, who was playing a blue control deck, like a blue moon deck, except, except it had moats. So it was more of like a landstill type deck, right? Let's. How do I beat Eldrazi? Moat seems like a good answer, right? Tactical answer. Sure. Paul had, so Craig had moat in play, and Paul had going. Displacer, he had Thought Not Seer, and Spirit of the Labyrinth. Think about how mm-hmm. all those work together. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's beautiful. He had his opponent hard locked. What he did was he used every time Craig would go to draw a card, he would blink his uh, Thought Not Seer. So the Thought Not Seer would mm-hmm. exile uh, <laughs> Craig's card, and the Spirit of the Labyrinth would prevent him from drawing a replacement. So he would just exile every card Craig drew. He had him in almost a hard lock in his draw step. <laughs> It's like a Chains of Mephistopheles lock. It is. Almost. It is. It's like the Chains of Mephistopheles yeah. lock. So Paul... He only gets to play instants, basically, for the rest of the game. Of the game. And eventually, of course, and no counterspells. He can't build up counterspells. Eventually, Paul right. found Disenchant, disenchanted the moat, and, and swung in. So yeah. I say all that to say that this deck is incredibly disruptive. The, the Blink creature, the Displacer, can deal, with, uh, it can deal with Tinker targets. It can deal with Oath creatures. It can do so much. Not it can, it can yep. deal with um, you know things on your own board, things your opponents have. It can blink containment priests for all kinds of shenanigans. I mean, if you set up displacer with containment priests with opponent cards your opponent has, you can just wipe your opponent's creatures out. So these yep. just, these card these things are incredibly disruptive, and it would be a huge mistake to think that this is just big fat creatures. <laughs> well, okay, I agree. Jaco's list doesn't have displacer because it doesn't have white mana. So sure. there's that element speaking, specific to his. But broadly speaking, I agree that the deck, the Eldrazi tribe is, 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 I think, deceptively disruptive. I mean, Thought Not Seer is, you know, it's like a duress effect. We we know that that much is clear. I know. Reality Smasher has some inherent card advantage if your opponent doesn't deal with it. But the sum total of this, I think, is just there's still a lot of people, I think, that don't know how to adapt in real time to what the Eldrazi deck can present. Right. I right. think there are probably, and I don't, want, I don't wish to insult people, but the, the deck is still pretty new. There were probably a number of people at the NYSE who were playing against certain combinations of cards for the first time. Yeah. And if not for the very first time, you know, maybe the first time in a tournament. And first time in a tournament is a, a meaningful metric for encountering and dealing with new situations. And uh, it is not it does not make one a bad player to not be prepared for, for everything and something like that. And I imagine that every one of uh, Jayco's opponents were not prepared for what he was about to dish out. <laughs> yeah. he, has, yeah. he has three main deck dismembers. <laughs> he, has, he has three main deck warping yeah. whales for Pete. Yeah. I mean, that does things to matchups. Well, that messes up matchups. Look at the top three <laughs> decks, right? I mean, Shops, Eldrazi, White Eldrazi, and uh, Dredge. How good mm-hmm. is... How good is... Uh, ghost quarter against those decks. Oh yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's yes, eight strip yeah. effects. That's insane. Me, I, I mean, from the perspective of a mentor player, right? I have been playing mentor in tournament magic for 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 years, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as long as you yeah. can, and even slightly longer. Yeah. Um, the the point is, is that you get into play patterns when you go against a, a person playing wastelands. You have patterns of how you fetch your lands, how you manage your mana, how you manage your spells and colors. Three ghost quarters. Throws that whole thing for a cock. Exactly. <laughs> it, it screws everything up. It's just I'm playing properly around waste a wasteland deck. I'm prepared. Step one, step two, and then you get ghost quartered, and it's a house of cards. It all just comes down. 
it, it, let me put it this way: it puts you between a shop and an Eldrazi place, right? I mean, it's like uh, I mean, this format. I, I just don't know how you break through, because part of it is it would be one thing if we had this consolidated white Eldrazi deck. This we do have a consolidated shop deck, but you don't. You've got this sh- white Eldrazi deck that's all over the place. You've got this shop Eldrazi yeah. deck, but then you've got this menacing shop uh, tri- tribal deck out there that that you mm-hmm. can. I think you can build a deck that can compete with one, maybe two of them, but all three, uh, or the whole spectrum of white Eldrazi. I think that's much yeah. more of a stretch. It really is, and and in addition to all of that, those three decks are constantly going to be jockeying. Yes. Uh, with respect to each other for, for who can get the advantages in the matchup because as it's demonstrated yeah. by the results the white Eldrazi <laughs> deck uh, needs help it needs to figure out the shop matchup yeah. and and almost certainly it needs not, a I lot mean, of help it, it's it crush I have less than yeah I have less than 100% certainty on this but it's close to it anything that the white Eldrazi deck does to help I, it against shops is probably going to weaken it against Gush I, I think oh I think I thought you were going to say is anything you can do to fight shops is probably not going to help against the tribal Eldrazi deck because I, because I the too. way you yeah. attack the shops deck is with like the null rod effects right like, Re- like revoker yeah. is really good against the shop deck you can hit you know you yeah. can hit you against can ravager and strike, hanger, back. hanger back all that what does that yeah. do against this tribal deck? Nothing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's case in yeah. point. If you load up on revokers, they're terrible in this and, tribal matchup. And how matchup. is Gush going to fight all this? Well, Matthew Murray ran balance is part of the answer, but but I think balance is certainly part of the answer to all of this. But balance is not a great card in a Gush deck. I mean, you have no. le- light land. You have lots of creatures. You know, what, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, yeah. how are you going to... Uh, th- that's a spurious answer. I-, I think there's lots of tactical answers. Like moat is a very intriguing answer against all these things, but but moat has disynergy with monastery mentor yeah, for one. Moat isn't good against mentor. <laughs> moat does not stop. No, it's, it isn't good with yeah, mentor. Yeah, it doesn't stop. It's good yeah, against it mentor. Doesn't, it doesn't stop uh, the ravager trike or hanger back shenanigans. Um, right. You know, it's just it, it's it's hard to say it can get through the the thought not disruptive whatever. I don't. I don't know how you attack this metagame. We're, we need to break down the data more. I mean, clearly Dredge is is part of the solution. The problem is Dredge cannot beat White Eldrazi, so you kind of have to mm-hmm. make a gamble. Like maybe you think in a small event, you know, White Eldrazi is getting crushed by shops. Maybe it's not going to be there. You know, maybe whatever. Maybe I can play Dredge, but uh, these decks can very easily. I mean, it hurts other matchups. So granted, but these decks can very easily pivot to push dredge out. Exactly. Too. So yeah. especially, I mean, the, the the white Aldrazi decks have containment priest built in. They're already ahead of the game. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the answer for everyone is more anti-creature uh, effects, which I think is maybe part of the reason why Jaco has so much anti-creature. Three yeah. main deck no, dismembers and three warping wheels and and bringers yeah. too. I mean th- those cards are good against a lot of this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. I I think this is fascinating. I really do hope that this is even if it's not even if it's not a, a best deck or a dominant deck in it the is format. It's a viable option for but it is a viable a- option and look it, look at last year's attendance for well, for uh, vintage champs, right? What was it? 480? Yeah, I forget what yeah, the exact. Yeah. We could legitimately have 50 to 100 people Easily. bring the this deck to vintage champs. The most expensive card in this year. deck, individual card, may be the Cavern of Souls or Wastelands, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, that's that's like a $50 the, card, right? It's, I mean, it's not. You're exactly I mean, right. 
the most expensive cards are net captured. Yeah, maybe like the the one Crucible might be up up there. But this is Crucible's reprint, reprinted tenth edition. This this deck. I mean, I remember, you know, we mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but Ben Blyweiss did a complete breakdown of the 2003 Vintage Type 1 Championship. And the two most popular decks were Keeper with 25 decks and Mono Red Sly in Burn, the Goblin <laughs> decks with 25 decks. I mean, people enter yeah. that event with budget decks. This is your budget deck. This is this is possibly yeah. cheaper than those slide decks. I mean, adjusted, adjusted for inflation, they probably it could it could be. And and last year at Vintage Champs, I mean, for years gone by, Delver was a very popular choice because a lot of people would just port their Legacy Delver deck into Vintage, even unpowered. There were a lot of a lot of budget Delver players there, and this deck could be at the moment it could it be, be counter magic pro- it probably is better than delver right. it's is got cavern of souls to be counter magic it's got like you said all the removal yeah. I, let, let me ask you a question so where where should you position yourself in this metagame i mean combo is a potentially very intriguing answer to the gush decks which we saw begin to happen in may but combo is not a good answer if you're fa- facing a field of thalia Doomsday sounds like a terrible mm-hmm. deck right now <laughs> i certainly yeah. wouldn't want to play dps against the shops and uh you know, these Nullrod Wasteland decks don't look very friendly either, the Eldrazi. But the shop, overall, the shops and the Eldrazi decks are weak. Very weak for you if you're playing combo. The Gush decks are terrible against the shops and Eldrazi decks, except for maybe the tribal Eldrazi. So one option is to try and play a Gush deck tuned to the shops and Eldrazi decks. I think that's a losing proposition, which is why I didn't play Gush, and I'm not playing Gush. I haven't played Gush a little bit recently since the rise of these. Um, Dredge seems like a great answer to the shop deck, but we just saw it gets crushed by the white Eldrazi deck, um, and I can't imagine it would have a great matchup against uh, Jayco's deck, which sideboard is totally loaded for that, for, for mm-hmm. Dredge. Um, looking at the data, it would be hard-pressed to play an Oath deck. Oath deck is one of the obvious answers, but look at Oath. Oath got, I mean, according to this data, Oath got uh, loses to Dredge, and it uh, is just got crushed by shops here. It got a 33% win percentage against the shop decks, and it was 41% against the Gush decks. So you might, and you're only 50% against Eldrazi. Eldrazi has main deck containment priests, you know, sideboard, all these things. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I just can't think of Oath as a solution to these. Now, Oath might be decent, risky, against some of the approaches, but, you know, that's not the answer. Um, I, I, I just don't see an answer here. Blue Control had 30% win percentage against shops. Um, it just it's clear to me, overall, the best performing deck is shops, and that's the best place to be. Just have a bad dredge matchup, and you should you should be fine. You know, I mean, maybe if you can shore up dredge a little bit, you'll be even better off. I don't know how, but that seems like the easiest fix, right? Well, there there's no real easy fix. I mean, that from a matchup standpoint, you want to at, at the moment in this configuration, you want to be on shops or Eldrazi, yeah. and you want to try to figure out that matchup. Yeah whichever side you're yeah. on, and, and make it the winning matchup for you. Shops is advantaged at the moment, but that can change. Yeah. It probably will change. From a from the perspective of a blue player, though, you know we didn't have, in this whole metagame, the best-performing blue deck was still at 58.5% against the field. So you're starting, every one of them is starting from the ground up at a disadvantage. I think there are a couple of answers. One is creature removal. I do believe creature removal is more important and in Vintage ever, now than it yeah. <laughs> ever has I mean, been. Look like, how good Path to Exile is against all these decks, right? I mean, it's basically a... I mean, it's, it's, it's ironic. Path to Exile has been growing in popularity because of workshops, but Path to Exile is actively not very good against White Eldrazi. They actually fetch out basic lands from you, and it helps them a, a yeah. lot. 
Um, but th- that's a minor point. I do think it's a good example, though. And I also think that part of the reason why this White Eldrazi deck is so good right now is because it has good answers for nearly everything in a way that yep. no vintage deck yep. has in yep. a while. It, it You pick any one strategy, and the deck has more than two, almost, you know, more than one at least, ways to deal with it just baked in. And that's really hard how to deal you, with. How, how do you uh, redesign White Eldrazi to fight shops, though? I think humans faces the same problem. I mean, humans, yeah. humans, we haven't even talked about five, four or five colored humans, but five, four or five colored <laughs> humans could be designed to be a huge favorite against gush decks. I mean, if you can run cards yeah, like, it already you is, can run so. cards like, like Gadok, Teague, Spirit of the Lab, yeah, it already is. So, and that's yeah. another deck that Gush is weak against. So how do you, how could humans or Eldrazi, white, these white Thalia decks, how could they design themselves to combat shops? They don't have red. They don't have well, green, which are the two tr- colors you traditionally need to fight shops, right? Uh, that's true, but they could. I mean, it's one of the things. We're still on the early stages of development for these white-based they, Eldrazi some decks. White I mean, red Eldrazi with like Magnus of the Moon. It, well, it wouldn't. It would not take much. You throw some. Um, you throw some. Um, not not plateaus though. That's that was what I was getting at. You throw some battlefield forges in a white Eldra- otherwise white Eldrazi list, and you can get your ingot chewer action on if you want. But th- th- that's spreading the deck's mana pretty thin. I mean, the deck can do what what Mentor has done uh, a little bit for the last year, and that is play Cavern of Souls and name Elemental, and then play ingot chewers. But I'm I'm not certain that's correct. But the the Eldrazi deck have lots of flexibility in terms of anti shop options. I believe. You've already mentioned the Null Rods being the way to fight the Ravager, Hangerback, Trike angle. I think that almost goes without saying. If you're on White Eldrazi now and you're looking for a way to beat Ravager shops, that seems like a good starting point, (laughs) right? Um, Or or Revokers. But it's just as we alluded to earlier, every, every little lever that you pull makes you worse in another matchup, right? And it's funny, I think that White Eldrazi could... Man, it's really interesting thinking about the ghost quarters in the tribal deck, too. But, uh, wow. The, the options are many. I do believe it starts with creature removal for yes, most of the I blue agree. decks. I, I think. And mass creature removal. You mentioned balance. I just don't, which think, I don't think Supreme Verdict is going to cut it, though. It may be okay, but. Well, no, I don't think so. I, I think the. And Massacre I think the isn't good enough decks, either because these decks don't have enough planes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't so, rely I mean, like, on toxic having Toxic Deluge. I mean, people don't like Toxic Deluge because you're suffering so much lifeless because the decks are yeah. fast. Yep, I agree. So I do think Moat is a factor because it has splash damage against Mentor, yep. right? If you can put together a good Moat deck, then you yeah. are inherently advantaged against agree. Mentor. Yeah. And I also think that... <laughs> I think it could be that some Planeswalkers that don't see much play like, get a little more action. Well, the ones that generate... Jace the Mind Sculptor is good against Reality, sm- is good against reality Smasher Jace in the sense that play, you though. can bounce it without discarding. I know. But my point is is that other planeswalkers that have anti creature abilities could be coming to the fore a little bit more. That's it just it's primarily because Dak Faden like Liliana or something? Could be, yeah. It's primarily because Dak Faden was so good for so long because it was removal against shops, but against Eldrazi it is not that. There's nothing in an Eldra- the standard Eldrazi deck that it can even take or that you want to take, right? It could take a null rod, that doesn't help you. So I think a lot of decks are still running Dak Faden. That's when... and which, which is even worse than ever. I mean, it's completely yeah. useless against the Eldrazi Menace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless you can ultimate it, then things change. But that's that's neither here nor there. Ultimating a Planeswalker, you're winning already, I think. I just feel like there are certain pain points that these creature-based decks, uh, you can fight them out. But there's still you've got to take a 
a, a, a top-down approach and think kind of orthogonally to what these decks are good at fighting. So I think that some lessons we've learned from Brian Kelly's deck construction method, for example, <laughs> building decks that have lots of ways to attack and yeah. answer, I think that's part of it. I think that more creature removal is part of it. I think that we might see... I, I feel like... <laughs> I, I don't want to be... I'd say that this is the solution. But looking back in time, why was it that we weren't playing Gush for years and years and years, right? When it was unrestricted. Part of it was Thirst for Knowledge, right? But shortly before that time period, there was also just Grixis Control was the default blue yeah, deck. Yeah, I mean, Grix, Bob, Bob um, and Jace was the default blue deck. I mean, Gush really didn't come back. Gush was unrestricted in 2010, but it didn't really start surging until delver was printed that's when it came back yeah. and then young pyromancer boosted even more and mentor has boosted even further that i think we can learn something from that time period that pre-delver time period because the standard vintage deck was combo control yes. with and now vaults. we don't describe yeah. we don't describe I mentor as combo agree. control I, I think that's what's going on i think that this event so, so here's one way of thinking about it. One way of thinking about it is um, <laughs> one way of thinking about it is that the the vintage metagame is going under upheaval, right? I mean, last month we had White Eldrazi break out. Now Shops has surged mm-hmm. over, and now we've got this Eldrazi tribal deck. It's one thing to think within those loops, right? That box. So the yeah. box we have is Dredge, White Eldrazi, Tribal Eldrazi, Shops, Oath, Gush, Big Blue, Men- Combo, Mentor, right? That's the box. Yep. But I think that what we're seeing is I think what's going to be bigger and more transformative paradigm shifts here or moves. I think that that the solution doesn't lie in these existing decks. I think you're right. I think we're going to see space now for combo control to come back. And I think we see a little hints of it, right? So like the other day, Rich Shea 4 0 a daily with Control Slaver, right? I think yeah. that's a possibility. But what's interesting is that it's hard to fight all these things simultaneously using answers. And so what you pointed to is Key Vault is a not an answer. It's a combo, right? I mean, uh-huh. the answers that we have, like Oath, are just answered by the answers out there, like Containment Priest. Like, for example, yeah. I think you're so right when you say Eldrazi is like a six color. I mean, think about the traditional answers to workshop decks, like DAC, or traditional ones like Hercules Recall. Or even Steel Sabotage, which is a Brian Kelly-type card, right? Those cards have very little utility <laughs> against against yeah. Jason Jaco's deck. There's some, they do some yeah. work, but they hit null rod. That's about it, <laughs> you know. If you take that approach, you have to look at more flexible cards like your Abrupt Decays and your Engineered Explosives. Absolutely. I think that part of the danger here is that, I mean, it's clear to me that Gush is not dominating this environment. And I think what's going to happen is the only direction that you can be pushed, I mean, you can only squeeze a balloon so many different directions before it pops out of, out of the <laughs> strictures of the balloon, right? Like you can only squeeze an object, a handbag or whatever, right? So many different directions, like a beanbag, right? You're pushing one direction. These are crazy <laughs> metaphors. But my point is that <laughs> my point is that I think there's a real opening for multicolor blue decks that are built along different axes than we've seen in a little while. Yes, gush decks are going to put a limit on how you can go, but there's a my point is a limit on where you can go any direction, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you got to pick your poison. You can't. You can play shops, and you're going to lose to dredge. You're going to play uh, white Eldrazi, You're going to lose to shops. You're going to play oath, but you're going to lose to a number of, like gush. So you've got to figure out. 
how to position yourself in this metagame to maximize your chances of winning. And I think that it's it may be a mistake to try and think within the box. You got to think outside it. And I think I think we are now at a moment where we need to think much more radically outside the box. I think we need to see yeah. a, a variety of blue control decks that approach the format very differently. I mean, I think blue control can fight Gush. Uh, we've seen in the VSL Landstill decks compete. Like like Supreme Verdict is actually an excellent card for fighting Gush along that axis because it can take back tempo. Now the one weakness that Supreme Verdict has is the Cabal therapy strategy, but you know, but th- yeah. that's it. I mean, I think I think Supreme Verdict is fine. You know, we've seen Landstill decks, and we've seen Brian Kelly design Oath decks to to win tempo back against Gush decks. I mean. The, the one problem blue, big blue decks have against Gush decks is the long-term virtual card advantage. Well, Brian Kelly's Sylvan yep. Library, which he ran the Vintage Champs last year, and Top had no problem beating Gush decks in that top eight. He beat Ryan Eberhardt in that top eight 2-0. And then Mark Taco yeah. beat Gush decks, the Gush decks with four treasure crews the year before. So there are <laughs> clearly ways the blue decks can compete with Gush decks. They're just going to have to figure out creative ways to do it and attack the rest of the metagame at the same time. I feel like this topic is overlapping very powerfully with our listener feedback. We received a lot of good listener feedback, both on Twitter and on the Manadrain since our last episode and in preparation for this one. So we have a fair number of things to respond to here. We've already started it as it pertains to things to talk about this episode. So let me pull out a couple of examples. Uh, Naveen Vermuri responded when we asked for in- input on what to talk about this episode. He said, Eldrazi and where the metagame goes. Sideboard space to fight shops. Eldrazi, hate bears, dredge, mirror combo seems hard. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's why I wanted to transition because we were just talking about this exact topic. And you can't sideboard enough to beat every matchup. That's one of the things that the matchup percentages are are demonstrating for us. Uh, certain decks are advantaged across the board, but even those decks have uh, one or two terrible matchups that they're losing consistently. And so I, I believe you're just going to have to pick your battles. <laughs> you're going to have to do true true metagaming, which is pointing to what's the smallest part of the metagame and choosing to lose to that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's you know wise metagaming. But no, you can't make a deck that beats everything. Yeah. You you can make decks that are good against the top, you know, two out of the top three or three out of the top four maybe, but you're still going to have a rough matchup in there. And that's why I think, Steve, you're, you and I were just alluding to what can Blue do. Well, Blue can take some lessons from the past and the and the present but um, and have maybe some more diversity of threats and maybe a little bit more explosive finish in some cases a la combo control. But there is no one solution. Yeah. Well, and, and I think what we're saying is the metagame needs to – look, there's a churn going on. There's an evolution, and it's going to be some time until we figure where these things settle. And, and this has all been triggered by the restriction of Golem, right? And the restriction of Golem yeah. opened up decks like Thalia to come out. And Now, Jason yep. Jaco says that he believes that his deck crushes four lodestone decks, which, which is <laughs> inter- an intriguing question, right? I mean, like – does that yeah. mean that it was necessary? We we don't know, right? <laughs> right. Time will tell. I mean, it's worth noting that that Tribal Eldrazi deck has more reliable ways to get two mana on out of its lands than Workshop does to get two or more mana. Because Workshops, we've often pointed to the card Mirsha's Workshop as being the so critical because of the mana boost that it provides in the first turn. 
and then in recent years, that is the last several years since Lodestone, Ancient Tomb has become right. the standard for Mishra's Workshop right. decks, right? Well, compare it to the Eldrazi Tribal deck. They both have four Ancient Tombs. The Eldrazi Temple mirrors the Workshop. It's only two mana, but it's still explosive. But beyond that, Workshop decks are relying on Moxin and, in the past, some City of Traders, whereas this Eldrazi deck has Eye of Ugin. And when you think about Eye of Ugin as it, as it compares to many of its creatures, it's actually providing more mana than a Workshop would on turns like two or three. You can play Temple into Mimic, and then you can play Eye of Ugin and play two creatures on the second turn. And then on the next turn, you can play two more yeah, creatures exactly. with an Ancient Tomb or another Temple. You can accelerate ways we've never I mean, seen before. Really. Right, that Eye is actually providing you more virtual mana than yeah, a workshop does in could, certain yeah. draws <laughs> that's <Yeah>. nuts <laughs> and, and let's not forget the whole turn one i mimic mimic kind of it's, draws it's weird it's like it's like eldrazi r6 6 color but the, it's almost orthogonal to color it's like it accelerates yeah. in a way that we've never seen before <laughs> well and it's because i mean because they printed some lands designed to do that right the eye is an unprecedented yeah. hand and the temple is not unprecedented. It's just basically another right. ancient no, tomb. No, it's completely But existent. it's just, yeah. it's an ancient tomb that only that deck can use. Anyway, anyway, but let's get back to our, our listener feedback. Steve Sasala says, is it time to start Force of Willing, Black Lotus, and Mana Crypt since the rise of the Eldrazi? Cavern <laughs> of Souls is a good problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I have two thoughts on this. One is that players have been Force of Willing, Black Lotus for years. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. no surprise. In certain matchups, it's the right thing to do. But you're right that Cavern of Souls does amplify that yep. issue. And Maybe your only chance to counter I, something. So I, I mean, think once you know what you're playing against, the short answer is clearly yeah. yes. I mean, if you know they're a Cavern of Souls deck, then by all means... Yeah, Man Mana Crypt is at its peak power. We're peak, peak Mana yeah. Crypt. <laughs> peak Mana Crypt. That's funny. But I think the more interesting part of this question is game one against an unknown opponent. That I think that's the most interesting area of this, is that in the vintage metagame as a whole, over the past decade or more, I think we might be at the point where forcing that turn one Lotus is also the, the right play most of the time now, because yeah. of so many Well, caverns. there are already lots of instances where I'd force Lotus. Like, if I suspected my opponent sure. might have a, 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 a Notion Thief with a Cavern, or salvagers. Sure. I mean, there's lots of reasons. Yeah. Or Jace. I mean, well, turn well, one Jace, Jace is a you big can force, team. but it's you can't. The cavern decks that run like Notion Thief, there, you know, the Grixis cavern decks, or with with salvagers, you've got to, you've got to saying. counter the Lotus if there's any danger they could play one of those creatures. Yeah, what you're observing is what I was referring to. In that, in the past, there haven't been nearly this percentage of cavern decks in the format, though. Yeah. Right. That's the thing. We didn't have 10 or 15 or 20 percent cavern decks in the format before. Now, now we're getting to the point where multiple archetypes are playing cavern and yeah that lotus can be an insurmountable advantage i think the short answer is that you should be considering forcing lotus and mana crypt by association m more seriously than you might have in the past let's put it that way and if it's post sideboard then there's almost no excuse i mean if you know they're on eldrazi and they play that lotus i think it should be your default response in my opinion what do you think you think it's default to force it now against eldrazi no, not post board yet. oh against eldrazi post board I would, yeah. I would, when you know they're an Eldrazi deck. 
Um, no, I don't think we're quite there because the probability okay. of them having a cavern. It well, so so your point is that that it's not just cavern; it's Eye of Ugin plus Lotus could be very dangerous. No, no, that doesn't work because it, 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 it doesn't it, work it, because you need colorless. But Mana Crypt plus Eye of Ugin. Well, it does work though. You can you can sack a, you can play Eye of Ugin, sack a Lotus for white, and play multiple Displacers on the first <laughs> turn, or like Displacer Mimic, or you know other. So. It, it works some of the okay. time, and you only need one colorless for for Thought Not Seer. So you can't go Lotus Eye, Thought Not Seer, or Reality Smasher, but you can play it others. It becomes a much closer question. I would probably be more inclined to, to counter a Mana Crypt than a, a Lotus, right? I mean, if you counter Mana Crypt but and they I go Eye think- of Ugin, they have no turn one play. I yeah. understand. That's true. I, I was thinking more along the lines of Thalia as well, yeah. though, right? They go Lotus Cavern Thalia. You're gonna really wish you'd force that. <laughs> yeah, Lotus. for sure. Yeah, Cavern is not just an Eldrazi play in this well, context. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in my opinion, yes, it has become significantly more important and significantly more likely that forcing the Lotus is the right thing to do. Well, I, I want to address this this issue. So, one of the reasons that that um, you know we've been looking at data, data is to try and understand where the the metagame is going. But another reason is again mm-hmm. to continue to monitor banned and restricted list policy, and we're now at the point where you know, the DCI is going to be meeting to consider whether they should be restricting anything. Kevin, what's your assessment of the metagame? How would you describe it? <laughs> uh, I would describe it as still greatly in flux yeah. and with, with no firm answer as to what the definition of the I metagame is right now. I mean, we're in a midway, yeah. we're still in a midway point. Yeah, I completely agree. Now, the the, car- the cards that were bandied about for restriction last time, like a lot of players, including Rich Shea, wanted to see Gollum. They were didn't want to see Gollum, but they wanted to see Gush and Dark Petition restricted. And our data showed the Dark Petition was like three or four percent of top eights. <laughs> um, we haven't mm-hmm. even gotten to the paper yet. We do have paper, right? We do have paper results, although there are relatively yeah. few new ones compared to last but, time we reported. But the, the point that I think is so important is that you know one of the reasons we used to look at paper top eights is because that was how we could see performance. Now we actually have data like match win percentages, which is the, actually. I believe probably the best data point you would ever want, right? I think it is. I mean, it, it needs to be taken with respect to that event, to yeah, metagame. the specific yeah, events. That, but also a portion of the metagame. But with re- dark, pit- yeah, within reason, I believe that matchup win percentage is actually one of the most useful metrics to talk about the viability well, of a deck in a. So in let's an call this section the vintage watch list, if you will. Okay, so let's just discuss that for a second. So the cards that are on the Vintage Watch List, Dark Petition has been on the Vintage Watch List. And our data showed in the previous period, it was you know a tiny percentage of whatever. Dark Petition has clearly grown as a percentage of the metagame. I mean, it's clearly grown, but it's not. It's it's more than the than this tiny percent. Of what was I forget what it was in Magic Online. It might have even been like seven or eight percent of Magic Online, but it wasn't big. You have it in front of us. No. What what has Dark Petition go- gone to? Q1. What was Dark Petition versus Q2? Q1, in the first three months, it went from 5% to 0 to 5% in 4-0 decks. In all finishes, Dark Petition went from 5 to 3 to 4%. So it was averaged about 4% in Q1. In Q2, Dark Petition is what? Since Restriction, it was 3% in the second half of April, 15% in May, down to 4 so far in So June. it's somewhere between like... Four, 5 and 10%. I mean, it's it spiked up in May to 15%, in, but now it's And in the NYSE, down. it was non-trivial. There was a number of combo decks. We, don't, we do have the breakdown. The breakdown in the NYSE was... 
13, Our petition, there's eight 13, and a half, eight yeah. and a half. So eight and a half. So DPS is double, you know, almost doubled, but no one thinks that that card should be restricted, right? I certainly don't. Do you? I mean, no, let's just review its matchup win percentage. Let's see. 43 and a half percent against the field. No, I think we're good. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Obviously, the other card that got a lot of play is Gush. So Gush is, as a percentage of the meta, of the percentage of the metagame is fairly large. Its presence is is gone from 60% in April to projected to be about 30% in June with 32.5% of the NYSE metagame. But its performance yep. has just gotten worse and worse over that time. Its performance has gone from presumably pretty well to 46% win percentage. But most importantly, it loses to, it gets crushed by shops, the shop Eldrazi, it gets crushed by White Eldrazi. It it gets it's losing it's getting crushed by those two decks and it's I mean crushed like it just gets smashed mm-hmm. and then it has losing percentages to, to storm combo to um, dredge and we should also say it probably gets crushed by humans but the data is a little bit thinner on that and it had a losing percentage to mm-hmm. one other archetype in the NYS it had losing percentages to four arch it was the fifth best per- <laughs> you know so it had a losing percentages yeah. against all those decks. One of the biggest criticisms of the restriction of Gollum that came up in the feedback to our podcast two times ago was trend data. And let me read you something that Fred Bear said about the trend data. He mm-hmm. said, I think we need to be very careful with the type of argument made between data and subjectivity. Data may have justified the Gollum restriction. And that was because Gollum was actually dominating. It wasn't just a large percentage of the format. It was actually winning tur- all the tournaments, right? <laughs> I mean, Gush, even though it has four of the top eight NYSE decks, it has one of the top MTGO decks, top eight deck lists, and it's clearly declining in terms of the other metrics. He continues, he says, data may have justified Gollum restriction, but it really justifies a wait and see more approach unless you wait subjectivity. He says that's because, and again, pointing out, and we pointed this out, right? If you looked at the, if you looked at the March data, the March MTGO workshops just totally dominated. But in April, the data, I'm sorry, it was February that that shops dominated. In March, they didn't do as well, right? Right? Yeah, that's right. And so they declined. And what we're seeing is a clear trend line of decline of gush over time. It's my opinion, first and foremost, you can't restrict a card that's on a downward trend line. Now, if Gush could surge back up, then you would reevaluate. But to restrict a card that is on a clearly rather steep downward trend from 60% to around 30% doesn't make any sense. That's that's the strongest argument for restricting Gush is that it's 30% of the metagame. But if you look at performance, it's losing to five or six archetypes. doesn't mean that Gush decks can't ad- adapt, but this is a clearly incredibly hostile environment for them. It's They're getting it both ways. They're getting uh, the, the, the Sphere decks on the one hand and the Thalia decks on the other hand. And they're they're and yeah. according to NYSE they lost to Dredge and they lost to what was their the other deck they lost to here they had a losing win percentage against Combo right they're weak to Combo and they're also weak to humans which we don't even have any in here they had one five there was only one five color humans in the entire tournament yeah we don't know how it did against yeah, we Gush. don't know but we know it won the, so the third so the <laughs> one the bizarre, bizarre auction auction. Was yeah what so about the to say. third argument yeah. for why you it would be ridiculous to restrict Gush is that it hasn't won any of the last three most important events. <laughs> it didn't win the Bizarre Moxon. It didn't win the NYSE. And it yeah. didn't win the MTG Open. You know, it's interesting. You and I are celebrating uh, this this uh, wealth of data that we've got thanks to the work that our, our peers in the community are doing here. 
it would be unprecedented for Wizards to refer to a deck match win percentage yeah. <laughs> in abandoned restricted We've never justification. Had it. We've never had it. But even if you yeah. look at yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait. The thing is, and I said this four episodes ago, maybe I think they might have it. I think actually that they For do the have it, whether or not they're yeah. using it, because they've had this kind of stuff. They have they, right. They have these, that data on that Magic were, Online, is what you're saying. They don't have it for tournament paper tournaments. No, you're right. All right, but for Magic Online, they do have it. They they should have it, and whether or not they're using it is is you know up to interpretation. I think because they don't allude to it at all. They don't talk yeah. about its X percentage of the metagame. They don't talk about it beats other decks X, an unacceptably high amount of the time or anything like that. If <laughs> I'm just wondering, you and I I think are in total agreement. We're in the age of big data. Not relying, not utilizing this information we have would be irresponsible. I think, but. It's still, we're, I think we're still swimming upstream a little bit here in terms of the history of the ban and restricted policy decisions. These people behind the scenes might be using this data. But they might not. My guess is they're probably not. My guess is they're still probably in the last several looking at top just eights. the old style but, big picture. But even if, even if yeah. you look at the old style, I mean, the last Magic Online premiere event had one gush deck in the top eight. You know, so yeah. so you know this is this section of this podcast is the vintage watch list, right? And and uh, <laughs> if you're going to restrict a card, you have to meet at least a couple criteria. It has to have a good performance against the metagame, has to be able to win tournaments, you know, and it can't be the third, fourth, or fifth best performing deck. It just can't. I can understand restricting a a, a card that's but, in the second best performing deck that's oppressive, like a lodestone golem, because lodestone golem creates unfun dynamics. But you can't restrict a card that is that is the fifth or sixth best performing deck. It just makes no sense. <laughs> but yeah. I, while I agree with you, I would like to point out your use of the, the word performing yeah, it's there. Match win it, percentage. It, it is yeah. still, and, yeah, you're still referring to a metric that they have never publicly used We don't before. have the percentage of top eights. We do have, uh, I mean, I don't know if you have the paper data compiled for us to report on that. We could... I do. I mean, I do have the paper percentage of top eights. In terms of paper appearances, the literal numbers in April for April. Mentor were 27%. Yeah, but that's April. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, you're about to, yeah. No, you're, yeah, for April, it's 27, down to 19 in May. Now, keep in mind that paper results are delayed by about a week yep. or two because of, you know, logistical reasons. So we're really just getting the end of May now. Mentor went from 27 to 19 in terms of total appearances. Shops went from eight yeah. <laughs> up to nice. 19. <laughs> So there was a big discrepancy in April, but now they're neck and neck for first and second, and nothing else is more than like 6%. If we do the weighted metric, which I've started to do and I like to do, by 16 players, you weight these by 16 players, minimizes the tiny tournaments and emphasizes the the big ones. Mentor went from 28 to 21, Shops went from 6 to 16, and Delver, strangely, went from 3 to 11 (laughs) in May. I I don't know why. So the the top three and four decks are different in paper. But it's still mentor versus shops jockeying for first and second, and everything else is in the single digits. What, uh, what about you know, less than less than even seven percent? What about 7%. gush overall though? We have that data. Well, if you if you're looking at May, then you'd want to combine uh, mentor and Delver. Well, the two of those get you to thirty one percent. And if you toss yeah. in a peppering of Doomsday and uh, Jeskai Ascendancy yeah. and a few other onesie twosie things, you get to about 
mid 30s. Uh, yeah, and our baseline for dominance has always been closer to 40. I mean, you know, it, yeah. and, and if you, I mean, that, like, just to point, point of comparison, Thirst for Knowledge Decks, when they Thirst got restricted, was 45% of top eights. So it's clearly yeah. not there. And when Gush was restricted before, it was, I mean, in 2003 when it was restricted, it was about 40%, it was over 40% of, around 40% of top eights. And that was just one archetype, not this, like, throwing in the doomsday and the random yeah. stuff. But Mentor is about 20%, and that's about where I think it's going to stay. But you're alluding to something that I want to elaborate on further, and that is the fact that in the past, we have no real way to know what the match win percentages were for all these decks that we talk about, like Thirst, for example. It could be, just just hypothetically here, right? It could be that Thirst was 50% of the metagame with a 48% match win percentage, and we still restricted it because it was 40% of top eights. So what I'm getting at is that you and I are very excited about this whole match win percentage thing. It could be that a bad match win percentage is still not an exclusionary sure. factor but, for but one thing. So so there's the, the one thing I want to point out this differential here is that we all knew that when, when Thirst was winning, it was winning tournaments. It wasn't just appearing in top eights. It was That's winning true. tournaments. There's no mar- That's true. It had the a lot of tournaments. The last three marquee wins. events, Gush has not won any of them. So, you know, it's yeah. been one. What's won by three completely different arc, dark archetypes? Dredge, Shops, yeah. and Humans. You know, and so that's the, so. So the three yeah. arguments for the, so we can. What, I think what you're alluding to is we can speculate that the match win percentage for for Gush was higher than fifty percent because it was oh, winning. Oh yeah, these G- Gush was winning. I mean, it was restricted in two thousand eight. It was beating. Yeah. The, it was beating the so, other so, decks. Whereas Gush is uh, is high numbers, but it's not. If you're, if you're the, the DCI, here are the three arguments for restricting Gush. The first is that it's pro, it's it's roughly twice as prevalent as the next most perform prevalent deck now that now, but if you combine yeah. eldrazi and shops in, into one sort of third it's thing closer. it's a lot closer they're, they're very close um the second argument for restricting gush is that um gush crowds out other blue decks so that will compartmentalize mm-hmm. it and the third argument is is um is is that its percentage of top eights although it's fluctuated is still justifiably within range of where Gollum was, right? That it's about, you know, yeah. in the 30, 20 to 30 percentage, which is where the Gollum decks were. But but you have to weigh that against, first of all, Lodestone Gollum was an incredibly unfun card to play against that won on turn one, <laughs> whereas Gush actually is a turn three play and actually is highly interactive. Second, Gush is the fifth, sixth best performing deck, and it hasn't won any of these tournaments. So I think the the, restri- the argument for the restriction of Gush, and everyone I've talked to, pretty much everyone i talked to NYSE has said this, has collapsed in the last couple months. The, the fourth, I think, perhaps most important thing is even if you just step away and look big picture, bird's eye, the format is in flux. It's in massive yeah. upheaval. It's just really impossible to know what direction it's going to go here. We're seeing the squeeze. We're seeing the lines of demarcation. But it's not clear what's yeah. going to emerge. You know, um, It's clear that Gush is very oppressed right now. And, and I think that one explanation for why I, I actually think MTGO is perhaps the best indicator because you have, you know, you had less players, but you had a high density of skill across the format. Right. And so the, the MTGO uh, event had one gush deck in the top eight. And and, you know, on paper, people are a little bit slower to to, to adapt. But there should have been 
three gush decks in the top eight if Jaco and Brian hadn't drawn. And they didn't they mm-hmm. didn't win the event in any case. And the one deck gush the deck that did really well is the most the deck that was perhaps best calculated to survive this, which isn't even a mentor deck. <laughs> it's the Pyromancer deck. Yeah. So I think we've just got what I'm trying to say is you don't restrict a card when a format is in this much chaos. That's the I think the fundamental problem with the restriction here is that we've got a long way to see how things play out. And I think there's massive openings right here for things to enter and it's it's exciting to see what's happening in this format. I agree completely. I feel like our ban and restricted list discussions between both you and I literally, but also just the the community and the format as a whole are going to get more sophisticated thanks to this greater data yep. over the course of the next few well, years. Well, it will be interesting. We'll continue to track you know, even you know, there's yeah. been these these years period years where there was no BNR discussion, but we'll continue to track the data, and we'll present it in these yeah. podcasts. Uh, we probably won't do these metagame updates quite so frequently, but we wanted to make sure that we got a chance to at least present the data before the next banner restricted list discussion. <laughs> Going back to some of our listener feedback, let's see. John Joyce says, thoughts on White Eldrazi versus Eldrazi Tribal, which is better and why? Pretty sure we've we've hammered that issue home <laughs> uh, at many different angles already. Uh, Lisa Seeley says, a discussion point, stand still with off-color moxes versus not. Now, we can tack this from a couple different ways, but the first is just looking at the paper results for Landstill, which there were several in the last two months. I've got six finishes. There were three in April, three in May. Those are top eight finishes. Of those, one of them was a second place finish with five Moxen. The other five, two wins, a third, a fourth, and a fourth, all with two or one Mox. And the second place finish, it's funny, the second place finish lost to a two Mox Landstill wow. deck. <laughs> yeah. So... I believe that the paper results point to the five Moxen list not being nearly no, as successful. No, but... And I also, from a theory standpoint, I don't like the five Kamaks for Lancel, but I don't think I don't think you go to the just two either. I think I think you probably do something what LSV did is you run like maybe one or two in the sideboard, or maybe even one mm-hmm. off-color mocks. I think that balanced approach actually is probably the way to go. That's a that's a reasonable point. I think I think the numbers demonstrate that two in the main is probably the most successful and best number. Yeah. Um, I, I don't like the five mox list just for the synergy with standstill itself. Um, Steve, do you have any other listener well, feedback? Well, the biggest <laughs> area of feedback that we got in our last podcast, our last podcast was the mid-May vintage update. But the big, the, the one that sparked the most discussion, and it was a bit surprising to me, perhaps not to you, was the discussion <laughs> over the ethics of MTGO streaming. Oh, yeah. I remember that topic. <laughs> it was a good one. <laughs> it was prompted by, uh, funny enough, uh, listener feedback. Um, we right. people were very had very strong opinions about this and and criticized me for perhaps um, uh, too quickly dismissing some of the ethical concerns that underlaid them. And I I'm been somewhat persuaded, but I wanted to take a piece a couple pieces of this discussion apart. Here's one of the um, pieces of feedback from Evoga. He says, well, I thank Kevin and Steve for bringing to light that many MTGO matches are now team versus team. I was uninformed, it seems. And we never said team versus team, by the way. But there were some streams that, that were clearly people getting working together. I mean, there was a stream with Matt Murray and Danny Batterman and a couple other people. Where they're actually working yeah. together like to solve Tom Dixon, yeah. to sort of think through problems. They're playing today. Right. He, he continues, I must say it has left a better, bitter taste in my mouth, knowing that I've been losing matches and, and the player points I paid to enter against teams of co-casters. Parenthetically, I do agree that Stephen Brassman, with Stephen Brassman that the general chat is less useful as a source of strategic advice. 
I will be returning to playing vintage on paper exclusively with no hard feelings towards the streamers. That to me is like a really shocking, that's not what we were trying to get at. We don't want to dissuade people from playing Magic Online. We just want, we're just raising the question of what are the ethics here and what do the rules say, if anything, about it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there is an underlying ethical problem. Kevin, you're persuaded that there is. Uh, I don't know what you do about it. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I do believe that uh, in that post, Evoga refers to one of my primary concerns from an ethical standpoint, and it's just the fact that he's outlaying his resources and his time for something that is that it, it I, in my opinion it is blatantly unfair yeah. right yeah. magic is meant to be an individual sport and and when people cooperate then they're they're counteracting well, that co- cooperating so he's the alluding to the match we can cooperate in testing but, yeah, yeah. Oh, granted, granted. We don't want to say people can't cooperate because that, yes. that's <laughs> right. Teams are teams are still totally legitimate, <clears throat> but so I believe he's referring to some of the most basic, like utilitarian reasons why I believe it's unethical. I think there's some other broader, less tangible things as well. Uh, now I, I went through and read some of the code of conduct on Wizards' website, <laughs> and I found one particular quote on Magic Online that I think is highly relevant. It's number 10 for whatever that means to anyone. It says, do not violate the terms of any official organized play tournament rules as published and updated by Wizards <laughs> from time to time and at its sole Outside discretion. Outside assistance, now, yeah. yeah. So what that seems to do is it seems to bring into scope everything about paper yeah. tournament yeah. play. So does that mean now, I'm not allowed to look at my outside sources? But technically, yes, right? Yeah, technically, yeah. yes. I mean, that brings into the headings about spectators. So spectators is one. That's specifically outlined in uh, in the Magic Tournament rules. It says any person physically present at a tournament and not in the other category above, that was referring to players, is a spectator. Spectators are responsible for remaining silent and passive during matches. Now, granted, that exception. sentence begins yeah. with, that sentence begins with any person physically present, yeah. right? So obviously that excludes <laughs> someone who's present. in electronic yeah. chat. What does presence right. mean? Yeah. So it, it, it's pretty obvious, and it's comically so, but it's pretty obvious that the tournament rules are written very narrowly targeted at paper magic. There are, they're not, there's not even any allusion to the fact that they would apply to online in their verbiage. They specifically point to physically present at a tournament, right? That excludes people who are not physically present in a tournament. Uh, so... It's clear that Wizards has not has not at least published anything that very well addresses or very clearly addresses these points. They're taking their online terms of service, their code of conduct, and pointing to the paper tournament rules, which obviously are ill are ill advised uh, in this context. But <laughs> interesting just for the sake of just for the sake of uh, thoroughness, that includes taking notes as well. Players are allowed to take written notes during a match and may refer to those notes while the match is in progress. At the beginning of a match, each player's note sheet must be empty and must remain visible throughout <laughs> yeah. the match. Yeah, I wanted to I talk mean... about that, but let's bracket that for a second. Let's bracket <laughs> that for a second because I want to yeah. stay on the MTGO point. But yeah, <laughs> clearly that is written from the perspective of physical yeah. tournaments and completely uh, inapplicable. <laughs> so it's applicable in concept, yeah. right? But to your point in our original cast, it's completely unenforceable. Yes. You can't look through someone's yeah. webcam and say, "What do you got on the desk?" <laughs> it, it, so it's laughably unenforceable in that context. But in one sense, it's still somewhat enforceable because a person such as yourself, I mean, you're, you're famously on record as having consulted something for Doomsday, <laughs> for example, because you wrote, you know, article upon article yeah, on it. My own PDFs. Those would be pre-existing yeah. notes that even if you hadn't published a book about the matter, the, the simple <laughs> truth is, is that if you have something written beforehand, you're not allowed to bring it 
to a paper right. tournament. You can't well, bring can, a copy I of can, your gush book and open no, it up during a match. I can't bring it to the tournament. I can have it in my backpack. I just can't open it in the <laughs> context right. of the match. I can during open between matches. Right. So I'm saying this all because I think Wizards is is actually giving us mixed messages on this front. Their code of conduct for Magic Online tries to be very thorough. It tries to say, don't violate any organized play tournament rules. When you read those rules, they're laughably unapplicable to Magic right. Online. And yeah. so they've, they've put us all in players. They've got a general catch-all that incorporates all the paper rules, but they have a completely different context, and they're therefore practically inapplicable. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, it's it's comical the situation we're in, but it's it's bad practice by by wizards. I just want to I just want to be clear on that. This is bad policy by wizards. They're pushing us players in in conflictory directions, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that this rule can't can't work as I mean, it just can't work as it's as it's presented, right? And so you have a you have a, a rule that is not only unenforceable, but it's actually incoherent. It doesn't. It doesn't make yeah. sense. It's yeah, worse. it's worse. <laughs> um, l- l- let me just present a couple more pieces of feedback. So Matt Murray responded because his stream was is an example where he actually had like Tom, you know, whatever Tom Dixon and other people. Um, sure, sure. He says I can definitely appreciate both sides of the issue. I stream not to gain an advantage, but ultimately in the hopes that more people will buy into vintage on Magic Online and in paper. Does my intent matter? No, I don't think so. And I'm so, and I'm glad this conversation is happening. As far as actually playing while streaming, it is somewhat distracting. Explaining your lines to viewers while trying to execute them on NPGO, the quality program that it is, is a challenge. And as a result, I've misclicked or botched sequences. I'm sympathetic <laughs> to his point that that plays that that sort of the so there's there's multiple things going on, right? There's the streaming with your friends right. and working as a team, like calling up Brian Kelly while you're playing against his deck or something, right? Then there's the right. the sort of what I call the hive mind, and I, I, it's hard for me to know which of those to what extent they actually contribute or they don't. Like if I watched Matt Murray stream, it was hard for me to tell like to what extent like Bat, Danny Batterman and Tom Dixon's help actually made a difference. I, I don't know. It's really <laughs> difficult to actually tease that out, right? I mean, it's it's almost yeah. impossible to know like what effect that has positive. And every everyone who is a streamer has reinforced that right. element that this is not a net positive guaranteed right. thing just because someone's talking in your ear yeah. effectively. Yeah, but someone also said that they've watched in Rich Shea's stream people point things out that he wasn't paying attention to. So I, I I don't know. I think you need examples to prove it. Okay, one other piece of feedback. So Andy Probasco, the brass man, posted a very, very, very long and interesting post. Let me just read a little bit of excerpts, okay? So this is a tough yeah. one for me for obvious reasons. I had to think some time before responding. And I suspect I would have done this in article format if I still wrote articles. As an aside, excellent podcast, guys. I stream pretty regularly. I'm likely the top two or three players, possibly the top, for total time spent streaming. I've taken advice from stream viewers. And I regularly stream with another viewer, another player, who offers advice. He says, as a, and then he goes on to say the practical matter, right? As a practical matter, it may not be that beneficial, blah, blah, yeah. blah. Of course, that's beside the point. An unfair advantage is unfair, even if it's not a very big advantage, and even if sometimes it's a disadvantage. If you stream my, if you see my stream, you know I'm usually not playing at the level I try to bring to tournaments. <laughs> he says, this is tricky. Ethics and magic is tricky. I'm a firm believer that Mad Vintage and Online and Vintage Paper are two entirely different games with similar rules, which I'm sympathetic to, right? He continues, he says, as an example, I think it's not an ethical issue to scoop to a Bomberman player on Magic Online. If pressed, I would argue that it's unethical to concede to them for time reasons, right? But I usually do anyway for pragmatic reasons. It makes for a boring stream. I'd be happy to explain that opinion in more detail, but the reasoning is not entirely relevant here. Anyway, he continues on. The 
I just want to get to the the bottom the bottom. He says, yeah, his last paragraph. Or yeah, two he says, is of good. course, it doesn't matter what I'm fine with. The final arbiter of whether or not group account use is ethical is the TOS, and the TOS is very intentionally written in vague, widely encompassing legal language. Surely there are a few interpretations, but I expect the intent of the TOS is no, you can't do this, but we're never going to enforce it. I think that makes it a bad <laughs> rule, but there are lots of bad rules in magic, and it's still unethical to break them. It makes me uncomfortable, but I'm still going to break this one. It's completely impossible <laughs> for me to be unbiased here, and I respect dissenting opinions. But I think magic with streamers is a lot more fun than magic without them. I think it significantly reduces the entertainment value to viewers and streamers to restrict strategy discussion with other casters and takes away a sense of audience participation. I think strictly enforcing these rules hurts vintage more than it helps. I'm totally sympathetic to what he said there. Yeah, really good perspective by by Andy. I mean, he's got a pretty all-encompassing view of this as owner yeah. of the Mandarin. He's an active member of the yeah. community. He's one of the most active streamers. This is really good feedback from him, and I think he hits on all the right points. <laughs> uh, I, I don't have much to add. I mean, I think he's right on. It's it's a cost that the community pays to have quality, interesting, entertaining streams, yeah. yep. I think. I do think you can make a distinction between a streamer for fun and potential comedy value, such as Andy is, and a player like LSV who's streaming the premiere event, right? Yep. I do think there's a, a reasonable difference there. Uh, now, LSV doesn't need help, but I still wouldn't want to see LSV phone up yeah. Efro or some of his <laughs> yeah. other VSL partners who might not be in the event you know, and, and talking about a line of play. You, that's the sort of thing you might see on someone's stream. And in a premiere event, I really don't want to see yeah, that. That's true. Now, when Andy's half drunk at two in the morning <laughs> and he's got his, his friends sitting next to him and they're... They're getting crazy excited about some tiny robots play in the middle of the night. You know, that's not going to bother me so much. But it's we're talking about a gray area. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I just I just think that the discussion that's prompted is rich and interesting. I do think that they need to resolve the the question. The, Magic can't have a rule that's that crazy. Um, you know, it just it just doesn't like you said, it just doesn't work. There is one other piece. I want to yeah. pivot back to, to wrap up this section to the point that you made about notes. Right. I hadn't seen that section, but it's interesting. People violate that rule all the time. You're you, you posted this this section on the, in the notes. Let me just read one piece of it. Taking notes, <laughs> rule 2.1, 2.11, rather, taking notes. Players are allowed to take note, writ, take written notes during a match and may refer to those notes while the match is in progress. At the beginning of a match, each player's note sheet must be empty and must remain visible throughout the match. So let me just stop there. That is actually not how many people do it. So what does it mean to have a match note empty? There's a lot of ambiguities yeah. here. So for example, let's say I have a piece of paper that's folded perfectly in <laughs> half, and one half of it I have my match from last, my life totals, and and, on, yeah. and I just turn the piece of paper over and I start. That is a the same piece of paper, but on one side it's blank, and on the other side it's not. Right? Does that cons- yeah. is that considered a note? If it's, I can just flip it over and look. You know, that is very I, ambiguous. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I do think this this issue is probably not uh, used for nefarious means. Yeah. Uh, but I do believe that probably so, fully ninety plus percent of tournament yeah. magic begins with a non-empty yeah. sheet yeah, of paper it, in so, front of so, one of the so players. So let's just continue. It says notes, right? It uses the word notes. What if I have a pad yeah. of paper or a notebook? 
right? And the sheet that I have yeah. is is blank, but I but the other other sheets in there. Yeah. I mean, what should I just call a judge and say these people are violating rules two two point eleven? And what's the penalty for violation? I mean, is this? I mean, technically, that's what you could do. Yeah. Technically, that is a violation of this rule because notes is not defined. But I would assume notes, like if if I were to you know take my like let's say I'm I'm going into a court of law, right? And I've got my notes take it out of my briefcase and I go up to the podium and I begin, you know, arguing. Uh, that the, the note is notes are not just the top sheet. It's everything I have in the in the um, sheaf, right? It's everything in the folder of the sheaf. Yeah. So to me, the word notes in the natural reading, the dictionary definition would be multiple sheets. So anytime anyone has a pad that has been written on whatsoever or notebook, that's a violation of this rule as written. I, I mean, from now on, I mean, I'm actually changing the way I use notes because of this, seeing this. But I think it's, I think it's actually way problematic. <laughs> I, I think it's <laughs> – I agree with you completely. I think similar to Andy's whole feedback, it is just one of those things that cultural, it's being managed culturally. But, the, but, but they're different cultures. I, think, you know? I mean, I've been in Japan. Let me tell you something. Playing the magic in Japan is a totally different experience. I mean, the judge is treated so differently. Like, I mean, the way that the judge talks to the players is totally different. I mean, it was militaristic by comparison to, I mean, America. I mean, I just played in the, you know two paper events in the last couple months: the Asian Vintage Championship and the and the uh -huh. NYSE. And the way that the players interacted with judges, the way the players listened to the judges. I mean, when the judge was talking at the at the Vintage Championship in Asia, it was dead silence. You could hear a pin drop, and the judge was talking, hmm. and he commanded 100% yeah. respect. At the NYSE, they had to like tell everyone be quiet be quiet please stop talking the judge is talking like the head judge had to yell over people so cultures are totally different the magic comp the comp rules are not written for cultural differences why should this, I, this set of rules you're, you're totally yeah you're totally right i mean that that's clearly true and i had a laugh as you were reading because i was reading ahead you knew i was going next yeah well, i was going to well, I was going to go there next. Right? You go ahead. So I just wanted to ahead. break this down into its pieces so we could discuss each piece. So the next thing right, right. it says is players do not have to explain or reveal notes. So the, again, the previous sentence says that the, each player's note sheet must be empty and must remain visible throughout the match. But then the yeah. next sentence says they do not have to explain or reveal notes to others. So what's the difference between visibility and revealing? I mean, in magic, yeah. revealing means visible to be able to show. So, so I have a note. But, it, but it's a term of art, though. In magic, reveal means make plain all of it's, the information about exactly. this thing, right? So, so yeah. what does reveal mean here? Does it mean like, so I have written something down, but my handwriting is so terrible. Does it mean I don't have to – it says don't explain. So the re word reveal has yeah. to mean something more than explain. Otherwise, it wouldn't say explain or reveal. So if you're parsing yeah. this and doing a textual legal analysis – Reveal. This is a, it's just a weird word. I don't know what it means. So does it mean like yeah. I have a sheet of paper on the table? I'm cupping my hand so you can't see that piece. <laughs> it's the note is visible, but not the text that I've written. It's it's I, I don't know. it's crazy. And then it says judges may ask to see a player's notes and or request the player explain his or her notes. Fine. But but what is going on here? <laughs> well, I feel like. I feel like this is a an allusion to the fact that the converse is far worse. I think that's what this means, is that 
if they don't put this in here, then the converse <laughs> is I can obscure all my note taking from my well, opponent people can and al- they don't want to people allow can also for that. already do that. I mean, for example, if you know multiple languages, you can write in a different language. Yeah. You can create a sh- you can create gonna, a sh- I was just going to lose exactly that. You can create that. a shorthand yeah. that no one else can know. You can tr- Put it in Morse code. (laughs) That's why there's a note in here about the judge can ask you to explain that. That If you're you're capable of writing in another language, then the judge can come up to you and say, what does this say? Look, there's no doubt that what this rule is trying to do is to prevent a couple of kinds of behavior, but it it, it can't actually prevent all of them. I mean, that much is clear. You can write, you can write in code a language you yourself made up and, and the judge would have no way to know if you were telling the truth, right? right? If you had your own shorthand, if you had a symbol, a symbolic system for magical note taking, you would have to say this box means they took one damage. I mean, it is actually unenforceable. It is actually, they're just trying to shave off and dissuade people from doing certain things they definitely don't want to happen, which is hidden note-taking, really, Yeah, but and bringing reams of stuff to before the event. So they're using some broad language that is obviously I would, not part The thing is, if you wanted to lawyer this, you could say the hidden note-taking is actually acceptable. It just says the note sheet must be visible. It doesn't say that the note must be visible. I, I know. I got gotcha. you. I agree. This is not. This is not. It's it's trying to be overly specific, and it's not successful at that. Yeah, I mean, no, but it, I, I, we didn't actually make that point before. The, the note sheet has to be visible, but the note itself does not. Does not. Well, and I personally have very tiny handwriting. And I write with double O five micron <laughs> pens, and I've had a number of people lean over and say, "You have the smallest handwriting I've ever seen." And that's that's an example of what you're talking about. It's per, I'm writing in English with reasonable handwriting. It's just you would need a magnifying glass from the other side of the table to see it. And that's not intentional. That's just I just do it because it's my style and I want to save paper. Yeah. But <laughs> but but to your point, when I sit down at a match, I could have three tournaments worth of life pad results on that same page i regularly yeah, do yeah i mean we've talked about but it's so tiny saving paper like writing writing horizontally right. instead of vertically yeah yeah and I, I do have some actually some symbolic references i use for myself it's not t- it's not strategy stuff it's just who played first yeah. and mulligans I do and other thing. things yeah. for, you know for 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 referring back to how a tournament went anyway you i agree with everything you're getting at here i mean this rule is is it's, it's poorly written it is unenforceable it has a whole bunch of loopholes it's contradictory uh, just, <laughs> it's contradictory yeah and, and it gets and it gets doubly worse when you try to apply it then to online, oh, yeah. right? It just has gaping holes that can't even be applied, and all the concepts you're left as a user of this information. Like you and I are users of this, right? We're left trying to apply a poorly written Swiss cheese of a policy to a medium that it doesn't even apply to, and we're meant all we're left with is inference. We're left to infer. What does it mean when I sit down on Magic Online and my notes have to be empty? Exactly. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, right. So, Blank? Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, <laughs> right. And I have to reveal anything I write during the match? Am I supposed to hold it up to a webcam? What? Anyway, uh, I think we've beaten yeah. this issue no, I up just, enough. I just to... uh, in, if, any, uh, if any Wizards folks are listening to this show, maybe send a note to someone who's in a position of authority on this topic and and see what we can do um, because there's clearly way too much gray area for something that's meant to be official tournament rules here well i am let's just wrap up i'm excited for what's to come and our next podcast will be the eldritch moon set review i believe is that correct 
You should be right, Steve. I mean, that set will be probably full, fully spoiled in three weeks from nice. now, give or take. And so, yeah, it's going to be exciting stuff. And heck, we'll see if there's anything in that set that shakes up the Eldrazi menace <laughs> into today's metagame. Who knows? With that, thank you for listening to episode 54 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. We did not save protective games! <laughs> <laughs>